VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, August the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the command with an edition of the show. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. First off, tell me some good news. So if you got a little bit of good news to share, you bring it to our attention and share it with our listeners this morning. Let's give a little sports shout-out here. Let's start with softball. We know that we have produced some of the country's very best softball players, maybe some of the world's best softball players. And there's the Pan Am Championships coming up for the U18 rank, coming up in Columbia. And we've got a couple of young fellas from this province that are playing for Team Canada. So congratulations, safe travel to Adrian Green from Carbonair and Ethan Murphy from Colliers, playing for their country in a bit of softball. Can't beat it. And also coming up next week, the Galway Hitmen are making their way to Surrey, B.C. next week to defend the Senior Men's Championship title, which they have won many times. I can't remember off the top of my head just how many they've won, but the Galway Hitmen going out to defend their title. All right, I heard Jerry Lynn Mackey speaking with uh, representative of the Canadian Mental Health Association this morning. And, of course, as you know, mental health is always on the front burner and up for discussion on this show from every angle. But they're talking about this weekend's uh, Tickle Swim. So they've been doing it since 2013, and, of course, it's weather-depending. The forecast looks pretty ideal for this five-kilometer swim across the Tickle. They have a fundraising goal of about $50,000, but of course, you know, make your way down to the beach there in the cove, cheer them on, maybe share some stories, spread around some money if you have the capacity to do exactly that. So the Tickle Swim coming up this Saturday tentatively. Curiously, it's on this date in 1875. Captain Matthew Webb made the first observed and unassisted swim across the English Channel in 21 hours and 45 minutes. The swim straight line across the English Channel is 34 kilometers, 21 miles. They actually track it. There's a website I looked at this morning. There's been 2,858 successful swims since 1875 across the English Channel, akin to how people want to clamor up Mount Everest, although that's become a tourist trap as much as a, an achievement for the adventurer than the mountaineer. Quick science note before we get going. A couple of overlaps here. On this date, in 1609, Galileo Galilei demonstrated his first telescope to the Venetian lawmakers. And then fast forward to 2003, it was 20 years ago today, NASA successfully launched the Spitzer Space Telescope. Spitzer was the third infrared space uh, telescope, but the first to use Earth-trailing orbit. The telescope, usually all of these things are named after famous, albeit dead, astronomers. This one, in fact, was named after Lyman Spitzer, an employee at Rand Corporation who first advocated space telescopes in the 1940s. They launched today, 20 years ago, in 2000. And three. Okay. So I heard Jerry Lynn Mackey on the VOC Morning Show speak with Dr. Gerald Farrell, who, of course, is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association, about numbers, family doctors, those without. So it's about this time last year, the NLMA was saying there was about 125,000 people without a family doctor. Then that number was increased to 136,000 people, so says the association. And this morning, the number offered by Dr. Farrell was 144,000. So with the establishment of the collaborative care clinics and all of the incentive packages that have been put forward on a variety of fronts to recruit and to retain, to lure and attract doctors, yet that number is growing. 
The province disputes the number. They say it's uh, somewhere closer to 50,000. They did say earlier this week or late last week they're going to try to come up with a more precise number because without precision, then policy is just, you know, throwing darts at the wall, so to speak. So that number is really quite staggering. And then you add it into the conversation with the plan to address the surgical backlog. This is where it simply is boiling down to human resources, isn't it? Because inside the 32 recommendations from the Provincial Surgical Task Force, three basic categories, measuring and monitoring the wait list, improving operations and maximizing recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals, a centralized surgical wait list, and the rest. There's about 3,000 people just simply waiting for joint replacement surgeries alone. Then they talk about the need to free up beds in the hospitals for those who belong in a long-term care bed. But these are the same things we've been saying and hearing and talking about for a long, long time now. So doesn't it just scream? It basically boils down to we have the beds, we don't have the staff. So adding those numbers with people without a family doctor, staggering increase to 144,000, if indeed that's accurate. I have no reason to not believe what Dr. Farrell says, but it'd be nice to have some numbers. But that surgical backlog approach... Anyway, you want to take it on and inside that envelope, you know the deal. One conversation that people really don't like to hear a whole lot about is Her Majesty's Penitentiary. But the stories in the news now are really quite damning. We know the conditions of that dungeon that was built in the 1850s sometime. There's a lawyer, Steve Orr, speaking out about how his clients are experiencing their incarceration. If you've ever been inside the walls, I've only ever been in there on a tour, thankfully, and the heat and the stink and the violence and the atmosphere is really quite something. It's never going to be idyllic, and it's never going to be the Ritz-Carlton, and no one e expects it to be those types of luxurious conditions, but it's a hellhole. So 40 degrees constantly, no ventilation. They go to talk about the rodent infestation that once used to be possibly basically in the special handling unit, the shoe as they call it, but now apparently it's everywhere. The problem here is, again, staffing on top of rodents and, of course, on top of the heat. But now visitation is way down, and, of course, the need to have some regularity to schedule, whether it be a bit of rec opportunity to get out of your cell, to get outdoors, to stem some of the violence that we apparently hear, there's an uptick in violent interactions in the facility. So even if you don't care about the prisoners, what about the correctional officers? You know, people are missing medical appointments. There's confusion trying to, for lawyers to reach their clients for court appearances, whether it be on Zoom or actually to be transported to the courthouse. So I know that many people don't care about the issues regarding HMP, but the one summary point that most people bring forward, and it's absolutely true, is that they're going to get out. And if they come out worse than they went when they went in, recidivism will just make it more and more dangerous and jeopardize public safety. So you want to take it on, we can indeed talk about it. And of course, there was another death at HMP. Details are scanty while next to Kinder being notified and an investigation takes place. Also in the world of investigations, the serious incident response team say there will be no charges laid in what was a pretty scary incident that happened back in June, June the 5th of 2022. This is when two RCMP officers, they entered a home in Mount Moriah. They were looking for a missing girl. And while the family slept, they actually went into the bedroom of an 11-year-old girl and questioned her. Now the story, Mike King, who's the director of the search, says, you know, it's unfortunate that there was miscommunication and there was a... Uh, erroneous information given to the officers, but they tell it this way. They say they were about 45 minutes outside, banging and knocking and yelling, hitting the furnace multiple times to try to wake up the family. The family says no, because they have a dog. With any of that level of noise, the dog would have reacted. But there will not be any charges laid. But 
it's just it's such a strange and scary. Can you imagine the little 11-year-old girl? I mean, of course, the RCMP with so-called exigent circumstances and the need to try to find a missing child, everybody understands that time is of the essence there, but imagine being in that little girl's bedroom without trying first to knock on the bedroom door of the master suite where the parents or caregivers were laying asleep. It's really quite something. Anyway, you want to talk about it. All right, back to housing. A couple of interesting notes. So we know that the federal liberal government, the prime minister, not in a full shrug of shoulders, but did indeed really seemingly talk about passing the buck to the provinces and municipalities to deal with. Now, there is federal funding. There is a program to offload some federal buildings and federal land to increase the opportunity for developers. But there's a recent report coming from the city of St. John's. We're going to need to build a lot of houses. I mean, housing is an issue in Labrador and different parts of the province, but of course, the flood to the urban centers for amenities and services and healthcare, it's real. The population is growing here. Uh, the affordable units in particular are not. Here's some numbers for your consideration. So, single detached homes make up the greatest share of the dwellings in this city at 42%. A four-year drop in price between 2016 and 2019 has now been replaced by an increased price of 16%. That's out of March of 2023. So, the average price of that single detached home went from two, uh, it's in the neighborhood of $266,100 to three hundred seven. The issue regarding rent is dire. Median rent in the city increased 34% between 2010 and 2022 from $695 for what they call a one-bedroom, a studio, and a two-bedroom rental all the way to 930 bucks. And that sounds low to me because the stories I hear don't include 930 for two-bedroom apartments these days. So they're talking about the numbers of units that are going to need to be built. The housing shortage, based on current pace of new home construction, affordable and otherwise, the shortage could grow between 2,740 and 3,770 units by 2028, by 3,610 and 5,510 units by 2033. So when we have all levels of government doing what they can to not only protect their jurisdictional authority, and in some cases possibly shirking their responsibility, the housing story is a nationwide issue, and consequently, it will be one of the policies that define the different party leaders and their, their plan to deal with it. So on that front, the federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, he's asked to come on this program, and we're going to have him on at some point this morning. I can't remember what time. So we need to figure out about what the federal government actually sees is their role in housing. There are some programs and policies and money on the table, but the swift need to build what is, we're told, is 5.8 million homes by 2030. From where I sit, nobody has a plan to accommodate that. Nobody. Long-term modeling is not there. So on top of that, of course, the Conservative Party of Canada making an issue out of housing, as they rightfully should, because it is a massive concern right across the country, also asked for some time on the program this morning is the Conservative Party of Canada leader, Pierre Poliev. So we'll speak with Mr. Poliev and Minister Fraser this morning about that and much, much more. And of course, Sean Fraser most recently served as the Minister of Immigration. Some of the comments about, you know, no appetite to slow down the pace of newcomers making their way to Canada. Even some of the, I think, quite odd comments about maybe putting a cap on international students. So if you want to put your thoughts forward, suggestions or comments about either of these particular uh, representatives, whether it be Mr. Poliev or Minister Fraser, we're happy to take your considerations to mind. Okay. Uh, you know, I've been trying to dig into the World Energy GH2 environmental assessment. 
it's pretty thick. It's pretty heavy. But for folks on the Port of Port Peninsula who were either completely opposed or on side with the proposal, have you dug in a little bit? I will say there's a, fe- a fairly helpful piece in the Telegram today about breaking it down to bite-sized morsels. But when it's as complicated as it is, and whether it be socioeconomic issues, environmental issues, noise, vegetation, water, waste management, there is a lot to it. For those of you on the port port Peninsula in particular, have you taken the time to help me and everyone else listening to have a better understanding of exactly what's included in here and some of the red flags that you have considered to be uh, things that are worthy of more debate and discussion? We'll have to take that on too. And, okay, quickly. So, I look... I know, and it's been a long, dreary, frustrating issue to talk about the pandemic and the virus. There is no appetite for mandates and lockdowns and mask requirements in the general public, I would suggest. I would imagine the consensus don't want to have any of these conversations. I completely understand. But is there a way to have just a reasonable conversation about COVID anymore? It doesn't look like it. It certainly doesn't sound like it. You know, some people hyperventilate when you dare even bring up the fact that it's not gone away, and it's not. So, it's, you know, for some people, every time you bring it up, it says, well, you're just stoking fear. I have no interest in people being afraid of stuff like this. But being aware is vastly different than being afraid. So the numbers from the wastewater test sites, they've increased. The testing issues, which is a very hazy, fuzzy process across the country, we kind of gave up on testing, so nobody really knows the prevalence. They talk about looking at hospitalization and what it means for an already overwhelmed healthcare system. So I don't necessarily have a massive appetite to talk about it, just like many of you don't. But we don't have to be afraid, as opposed to information just to help guide what you think, how you behave, what you do what you think you shouldn't do. So whatever the case may be, because the stories are coming, in the States it looks quite clear that there's a surge. I have I know full well that the social scientists have to be adhered to at this moment in time. There is no way that it's ever going to be passable or livable for any of the extensive public health protocols that are put in place. It's one thing to you know, be aware of social and physical distancing and covering your coughs and sneezes and washing your hands and the stuff that we've been told forever today to keep us even from bucking the common cold. But if that's something you want to talk about or deal with, I'm not afraid of the conversation, but I just hope that when we have them, we just have them in pragmatic fashion. You know, honest, real conversations that aren't intended to make you sad or afraid or mad, whatever the case may be. All right, I wanted to give a shout-out to the folks at the Jacob Puddister Foundation. They had their Shifting Gears car show scheduled for last week, but the weather pushed it to this week on the 27th of August. So the Shifting Gears up at the uh, Southern Shore Arena in Mobile. Kenny Williams Arena. I was just trying to think of Mr. Williams' name. The Kenny Williams Arena, the Jacob Potterson Foundation, doing great stuff for youth between, I think it's 18 and 35, and the world of mental health. So whatever you want to take on today, let's do it. But please, as I offered off the top of the show, a bit of good news, good for all. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Time for a break. When we come back, we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Reminded via email during that particular break when housing conversations are taking place, what does the role of short-term rentals play? And funny enough, that was part of what I wanted to talk about and simply slipped my mind off the top of the show this morning. So it was back in April that the Tourism Minister, Steve Crocker, announced that the province would require property owners to register their short-term rentals, right? Follow the same rules as hotels, for instance. 
Now, that's all fine, but there seems to be a fair bit of confusion amongst these property owners of short-term rentals, Airbnbs and otherwise, as to exactly what some of these requirements beyond registration means. Housing advocates, people looking at the concern and the impact of Airbnbs, for instance, they say that simply having to register it, and even if you don't have to pay a fee for Canada Select uh, certification, what have you, what does that actually mean for what Airbnbs or short-term rentals mean in regard to housing and access and vacancy? Vacancy in and around town is about 3%. It's woefully difficult to get a spot, and it's extremely expensive for most. The median rent, in, the median rent uh, spot is not necessarily the sweet spot for so many people here who would be whatever the middle class means these days to low-income earners. So, yes... There is going to be some focus. We've seen some communities put a moratorium in the expansion of the Airbnb footprint. Bonavista comes to mind. So in this city, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 Airbnbs. And of course, well, the math is pretty clear. It will indeed have some impact. Some of those uh, Airbnbs may have at one point been a rental unit, but now, of course, basically for the tourism sector. But herein lies the problem. If there's ever such a cap, and it's hard to believe that the government should have the authority to tell someone who owns their own property that they can't rent it or they can't create an Airbnb in it, whether it be in the basement of the home or the entirety of the condo or the apartment itself, if it aligns with the condo rules and the apartment building rules, of course. So what happens if there's any sort of a move towards reducing the number, so then you create a problem on the other end. Now, housing for people who live here in my mind, is more important than accommodations for visitors. But when we have a growth industry that's trying to rebound from a dismal and woeful couple of years throughout the pandemic with all the travel concerns people had and what have you, and restrictions in place. So where, once again, is the, the sweet spot for how we deal with the short-term rental issue? They're a good thing. People should be allowed to make money with their Airbnb, but it does have an impact, and it complicates the issues even further for municipalities trying to deal with housing issues. And, you know, I always get the similar type of emails about, you know, it's not just a city show. Of course not. And I talk about issues uh, province-wide. And housing may indeed be a concern not only on the Northeast Avalon, but right across the province. I mean, we talk about housing in Labrador, for instance, all the time, including just yesterday when we talked about teacher shortage, healthcare worker shortage, public servant shortages in Labrador. Basically, for most, would be about the opportunity to get a place to live and the costs associated with a place to live. So that's absolutely uh, part of the conversation, regardless of where you are in the province. So when we have Ms. Minister Fraser coming up here, and Dave, do we have a time set for uh, Sean Fraser to be on the show? Dave's on the phone here, so uh, I don't know what time that is. But uh, 9.45? Okay, great. So that's coming up shortly. Again, you know, I have some ideas about what we'd like to discuss with the federal minister, but it's always quite helpful that we get an opportunity to hear what you think and the questions that are important to you, where you think the federal government's responsibility is on that front. And, of course, it's not simply about housing. We will indeed. You know, federal ministers, provincial ministers, they're very likely to only want to field questions about their current ministerial portfolio. But when the former immigration minister is now the current federal housing minister, there's an obvious overlap there that makes the questions, I think, quite fair. So we're going to try to blend those two things together as we speak with Minister Fraser coming up here in about 20 minutes-ish. All right. On that front, when we try to find, once again, compromise or what the right play is or federal or, pardon me, provincial government policy regarding things associated with, one, climate change, and two, the oil and gas industry. 
you know, there's still plenty of people here that they use an argument, and I don't know if it's unfair or not, to be honest, you know, talking about if there's still going to be demand for oil, and there is, there's lots of commercial and industrial applications where we don't have alternative forms of energy that can satisfy many, many things that continue to be of importance and in demand in this world. So the conversation goes much like this. If there's going to be the requirement of oil, it doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be new production. There's many international agencies say that there should not be any new production. There's plenty of oil currently understood, has been discovered, is being produced to satisfy the world's needs. And I have no idea when peak oil comes. I don't think anybody really does. But what do you make of the argument that when we have such low emission footprint at the production site in our provinces offshore, if there's going to be need, should that not be how the need gets satisfied? Do you think the companies have that as their prime consideration, or are they much more inclined to look at the bottom line? You know, the profitability. And yes, regulatory certainty, access to human resources, and all the rest of it. So many oil companies will talk, what I'll call a big game, on that front. But ultimately, as many of them have said out loud, only the best projects will proceed. You know, that comes directly from Equinor, for instance, when we talk about the three-year pause at Beta Nord. If only the best projects will proceed, does that include, beyond profit, the issues regarding emissions and or uh, human rights or whatever else is part of the conversation, especially when we talk about access to capital? Do you want to take it on? Let's go. Let's begin this morning on line number one and say good morning to the mayor of the city of St. John's. That's Danny Breen. Mayor Breen, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not so bad, sir. How about you? I'm doing great, thanks. Beautiful day out there. I can't wait to get out in it. It looks like it's going to be a fine day on the island. A bit of rain sweeping across Labrador. Okay, there's many things that we'd like to discuss. Uh, right off the bat, you know, I don't know if a whole lot was, a lot more was gleaned from the feedback you got on the shared use trails. We've heard all the arguments on the social media threads. Anything of interest that came through this uh, survey? Yeah, Patty, so this uh, this section, these projects were the uh, shared use path from Airport Heights and uh, Torbay Road to the Paul Reynolds Centre, uh, Columbus Drive from Canada Drive across the bridge, Waterford Bridge Road to uh, the trailway, and uh, the connection from Portugal Cove Road to Luggy Bay Road. So these were uh, the connections. We heard some commentary uh, around, of course, there's always a discussion on the surface to be used. Um, whether it should be pavement or, or granular, whether some of it should be granular, um, that discussion. Um, the the other um, issue was around the accessibility, and, and we heard from uh, people who live in, in many of the uh, uh, seniors' homes around there uh, that uh, the, the pavement around uh, Kenny's Pond has, has really worked well for them. And it's allowed, having that done further in those connections will allow people to get out of the home and go for uh, longer uh, longer uh, excursions. So any changes in the offing about what was once the plan to accommodate some of the feedback and concerns you've heard? Yeah, so once our staff are, are reviewing these now, they'll make some changes to it. Uh, uh, like, for example, uh, coordinating it better with the Metro bus routes uh, to, so that people can uh, take uh, get off the Metro bus and then take the path for, for part of their, uh, their trip. Uh, so that kind of coordination is still, still taking place before the routes are, are finalized. But pretty much on this section, uh, people were generally in favor of, uh, of what was proposed. Uh, let's move on to an issue that is a nationwide conversation, and certainly in this city, is housing. Is it true that you had a meeting, digitally meeting or Zoom meeting, with Federal Minister Sean Fraser of housing? 
Yeah, I met with the minister uh, yesterday afternoon in person here right there. Oh, in person. City. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, and we, uh, I can say that uh, as part of the Big City Mayor's Caucus and the federal government has been very open with dealing with mayors in the cities uh, across the country. Uh, we've met with, I think, every housing minister uh, in that time. Um, and met with Minister Fraser yesterday. We talked about some applications that we have, have in on the Housing Accelerator Fund and uh, also talked about some of the issues that we see. And, I mean, one of the ones that that I brought up to him was was how we can deal with this on a more regional basis. This is not a problem just in St. John's. Uh, so we have to look at it across the province in, in smaller communities and how can we can make these programs um, that that other municipalities can take advantage of, ones that may not have the capacity to do the work that St. John's may have. And so what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, what it means is that, you know, when you're applying for these programs, uh, there's a fairly, a fairly rigorous set of uh, goals and objectives and plans that you need to put into uh, uh, to participate. And uh, some of the municipalities in, in the province may not be able uh, to be able to put that uh, together. So there needs to be some way that they can partner or, or support bigger centres in uh in in doing this work so uh it's something that we've that we've talked about before and something that we've identified as um, as kind of the next step in in this process because these problems now are, are not just in the large urban centers uh, absolutely not housing advocates you know they'll all have different thoughts on the solutions here and we'll talk about housing as it pertains or relates to things like violence in some of the more violent areas of the city but when people look at you know, trying to put some controls in place. And there's a debate as to whether or not they are prudent and whether or not they work, but rent stabilization, rent control, vacancy control, are those types of conversations happening in your office? They're not, uh, not in us because it's not within our, uh, our jurisdiction to, to deal with uh, that type of event. The discussions that we're happy, having are how we can uh, coordinate and how we can collaborate uh, with the uh, with with the other government agencies and other levels of government to address these issues. So many of these programs require the municipalities to be the lead on those. So we then go out and coordinate that work uh, with the other um, uh, uh, NGOs in the in the region uh, to be able to access those funds. And even if you don't have all of the authority to make these types of changes, of course, proposals come from municipalities to the next level of government is part and parcel with how cities and towns operate. So is that something that the city would be in favor of? Because when we look at the median rent increases and the ability for people to afford rent and vacancy rates, I mean, there's there's a downside and an upside to all of these conversations. But does the city of St. John's think that rent control is a conversation worth pursuing with partners, whether it be the province or anybody else? I think any. I think everything needs to be uh, addressed right now, and, and rent control is certainly one of the things that uh, that other jurisdictions uh, some some have in place, and we'd certainly be interested in in being involved in that discussion because it also affects uh, the development of of these properties, especially uh, multi-unit properties. And you know, one of the things that we need to uh, that we need to address more is availability of land that may be available for affordable housing projects in the city, uh, whether it's crown land, uh, federal or provincial crown land that can be used uh, 
and uh, and being able then to to build some uh, some housing that has a, a lower cost base to it. And, you know, everything has a relationship with every other conversation when we talk about housing and economic opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. So population growth, economic growth really do have a reliance on housing and availability of housing. So how does that work into or can you give us a status update about the newly formed partnership for economic development between the city of St. John's, Paradise and CBS? Well, it's interesting. Right now we're going through our terms of reference and, and putting that together. Uh, but there are some areas that we're, that we're working towards. We should be able to, I would say, in in October, be able to uh, to release that and, and start with the process of putting together the uh, uh, the corporation. We haven't fully um, we haven't fully endorsed uh, the terms of reference that yet, so it'll be premature for me to to discuss it. But we're already talking about some initiatives that we can that we can look into doing right now. And certainly the, the big one, uh, Patty, is around uh, the, uh, the tech sector and around the, uh, uh, the new companies and, uh, and, and, and the incubator type arrangements. Uh, can you share what some hurdles might still be in place regarding uh, validating the terms of reference? Well, I think that we want to make sure that we do this uh, correctly. We don't want to start too big. Uh, we want to be able to uh, to grow it as we as we move along. So finding that uh, that way that we can get some staff in place uh, from our existing operations and um, and and leadership in place to kind of bring us to that to that next level. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor. Okay, thank you very much, Patty. You too. Uh, take care of yourself. Bye bye, it's Mayor Danny Breen, City of St. John's. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number two. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to start with uh, an analogy I heard this morning, so I can take credit for it. Okay. Stolen dog in the stolen election. These two neighbors have this uh, common friend, and uh, he's leaving the country, so he leaves the dog with one of the uh, neighbors. Leaves it on the doorstep early in the morning. In the morning, the dog is on the other neighbor's doorstep. So what happens is that second neighbor comes out, sees the dog, and figures the guy has left it to him. So they both claim the dog. Anyway, there's a big to-do about it, and uh, it finally ends up in court. And the uh, guy was promised a dog at the beginning is given the dog. And the other guy says, I'm keeping the dog. That's it. I don't care what the court says. And... Uh, keeps the dog and finally the cops show up and uh, he's arrested. Now that election in Georgia, uh, Mr. Uh, I, I won't call him the same. Okay, Mr. Trump says last night everybody should be able to challenge an election. This is after he was indicted. I love that mugshot, by the way. And he's right, of course. And uh, he says, uh, why should I be... Uh, held up for uh, or arrested for challenging an election. Well, the election was channeled, challenged, ch- 
challenged. It was challenged three times, three recounts. And then it went before a judge or maybe more, and uh, they all agreed that Biden had won the election. So I thought there was a pretty good analogy between a stolen dog and a stolen election. That guy is just not giving up. But anyway, do you want to comment on what uh, the, the, that case yesterday? Well, I mean, as you know, I follow along, but I'm loath to talk about some of these issues because there's no reasonable conversation to be had anymore about some of these things. The fact of the matter is he's not being arrested. He hasn't been arrested and charged with challenging the election. I mean, that's just one of those... It's a talking point that people will latch on to. The worst thing about all of this is that, you know, when we have, and what we should have, is an attention to law and order, it seems remarkable that the reaction is, well, it's going to be civil war. And, you know, uh, if it can happen to him, it could happen to anybody. Yes, because that's actually true. If people have been investigated, there's reasons to bring charges forward. It makes it through the grand jury process. There's going to be an opportunity to defend yourself in the court of law. Isn't that exactly the process that has been the linchpin of criminal justice, the cornerstone of criminal justice? But for people that are unable to allow that to just unfold, as it has for centuries, I just don't get it. And you know, on the Jack Smith stuff, you know, it's talk about weaponizing the Department of Justice and all that kind of stuff. But even in the, in the Jack Smith-led cases and charges, there's not one single Democrat who's a witness. Every single one of them is a Republican. So I, I just don't quite get the argument. I know people are mad. I know people are angry. I know they'll have the very staunch political leanings, which will allow them to uh, accept what is said by whether it be Trump or Giuliani or Meadows or anybody else. But if there's a process, What's wrong with the process taking place, regardless if you ever served in office, even the highest office in the land? So, you know, we're not even talking about what happened. We're talking about the politics of it. And if politics belong in the court of law, well, then I've been missing the boat for, for my lifetime, certainly my adult life. And then, and then they think that if, if, if he's convicted and sent to jail, the country's going to fall apart. What, what a lot of baloney. Yeah, I, I, and as, again, I know I'm happy to comment on whatever anybody wants to talk about, but I find that conversation virtually impossible. <laughs> uh, quick comment on, on the, on the uh, electioneering and the Green Party. I was in contact with the Green Party rep some years ago. Anyway, they asked me to, to run locally, and I said no because uh, you oppose the sealant. So I, I agree with your policies, but uh, on that alone, right, I suppose they still have that uh, in, in their policy platform. But, you know, the Green Party is the only party in this day and age who's talking about living properly on this planet that we can't kill the golden goose, we can't kill the planet, we can't kill the air and the water and the soil and so on, we have to live sustainably. And do you know, they got a little bit of support in B.C., they, I think they elected somebody in uh, New Brunswick and a little bit of support as far as I know in PEI. Basically, they're uh, a fourth party with a message that should be resounding among Canadians. They should be seizing it, as they are in Germany and other places. And what are they getting? They're running in the polls uh, 3 and 4 and 5 percent. Yeah, the German model might not be the best to emulate or to try to replicate here because it had some huge financial repercussions and didn't necessarily bring the country where they were trying to get with the emission control and alternative sources of energy and what have you. So the Greens, 
Look, I don't even know why they haven't latched on any further because when polled, Canadians seem to have some concerns about the environment, as they rightfully should. So I don't know if it's about the very singular focus that they bring forward because when people in their very quiet moments, in their bunk, in behind the voting booths, what do they vote about? They vote about the economy. I mean, they do. And there's economic repercussions regarding uh, climate change, transition, alternative forms of energy. It's all part of it. But I do think that, you know, as Tim Russert once said, it's the economy, stupid. And basically, that's true. And the economy comes in many forms, whether it be, you know, the the money spent on health care, on my ability to pay my mortgage and my rent and put fuel in my vehicle and fill up the oil tank in my home and pay my cell phone bill and insurance. But people, when they vote... I think regardless of what they stand staunchly on, 95% of people simply say, am I better off today than I was four years ago? How is the economy serving me and my family's needs? I think that really boils down to, not to oversimplify, but I think that really does put the pen and the X or the pencil and the X associated with whatever party or candidate that you favor on election day. Well, before the last election, they, they had polling on all this, and, and the environment rated really, really low. The half, only half of Canadians thought it was a, a, a serious uh, problem. But what you said there shows where we are mentally in a modern, educated, democratic nation with this environmental catastrophe that's, that's approaching us. But that said, Charlie, two-thirds of Canadians voted for a party with a price on pollution. That was, that was uh, 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 how should I put it, a very, very uh, minor stroke in, 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 in this battle. I'm glad they, they, they did support that party for that reason. But if you're going to use that as an example of a change in attitude, uh, I think uh, that's, that's not a good example. But anyway. Well, it's just the facts. I'm not, <laughs> not, not trying to spin it or make it work for my, my side of this conversation or yours. It's just the reality of what happened. And do you think I'm wrong? Because the economy does have a direct relationship with conversation regarding climate change. It does. Whether or not people think it does, because as we've said before, when you bring up climate change in some corners, the only pushback that you'll get from some is simply regarding the, climate, uh, the carbon tax. When climate change and policy and how we reduce or control emission footprints individually, uh, big organizations, companies, governments, it can't just be, okay, the carbon tax is bad, so conversation over. But, but that's what happens here. The reductive thinking just leads the charge. But my thoughts that people in their quiet moment will evaluate how they are, where they are, how they feel, how they feel about the last four years. If You know, we use four years obviously as the election window. Don't you think people will vote about their economic realities? Well, no, yes, they will. Uh, note that the carbon tax is in. Polyev, of course, is uh, campaigning against it. Yep. He, he knows that if he took a poll today... I bet you not half of Canadians would, would, would support that tax. That would, that would be my guess, and he knows that, right? Of course he does. I mean, they test drive all these policies. It's not haphazard kind of stuff. It's all very carefully calculated, focus grouped, all the rest of it. And that's how politics works, regardless of the party you support. And now Mr. Poliev is coming on this morning around 11 o'clock. And, you know, the issues that he brings forward, housing, extra tax, globalism, all the rest, I'm going to ask him about it. Not because it's what I think, but because I'm reacting to what he has said. And I don't think it's a mischaracterization to say that he is uh, aggressively campaigning already. 
so be it. But, you know, opposing something also has to be joined with proposing something as, as well. So the opposition, critically important, I've always said that. But at some point, opposing something is fine. It's what they do, and it's required. But proposing something or opposing, proposing alternatives or different uh, solutions or a different mindset, that's what I'd like to hear a bit more about this morning. So we'll speak with Mr. Poliev a little later in the show. Okay. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate nice talking to you. Appreciate the time. Oh, okay. Bye-bye. Take good care. All right. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I mean, is it? You know, someone just chimed in about education. I've said this repeatedly, and I think it's fair. Is that when Canadians are polled, and people in the provinces are polled, when the elections are looming, is, you know, it's always the standard uh, top of the heap. It's the economy and jobs and taxes and health care and criminal justice and the environment. And somewhere well down the line, I guess specifically when we talk about provincial polling, is education. If education was everyone's number one concern, then things regarding the economy and jobs and taxes and health care and climate change and criminal justice would get a lot more positive traction and positive solutions if there was more focus on a well-educated populace. Do you think? Anyway, we're going to talk housing when we come back from the break. Joining us uh, right after this is the Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and Communities. That's Sean Fraser. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, Sean Fraser is the Liberal member for Central Nova, also the Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and Communities, and he joins us on line number five. Good morning, Minister Fraser. You're on the air. Excellent. It's a pleasure to be with you. Happy to have you on. You know, I hate characterizing one portfolio or another as junior or senior, but it long was thought that housing on the federal level was a sort of a junior portfolio. Now it's very much front bench stuff. When the Prime Minister was asked about federal responsibility in housing, for all intents and purposes, how Canadians heard his answer was sort of shrugging his shoulders and putting off the technical responsibility, rightfully so, to provinces and municipalities. What exactly do you describe as the federal government's role in affordable housing? Well, look, before I get into my own thoughts on the role, I'd invite listeners to to listen to the second half of the sentence from the clip that you just referred to, where he said the federal government can and must help on housing. Uh, The reality is when I'm traveling across the country and when I've been here in Newfoundland yesterday and and today, uh, people want leadership from the federal government. Uh, Over the last eight years, when I met with people in my constituency office who wanted to talk about health care and the problems that their families were having, they didn't want me to say this is somebody else's problem to solve. They wanted to know how going to help. And I can tell you, I want to step up and play a leadership role, not only to pull the federal levers that we have at our disposal, but to incentivize change with provincial and municipal governments so we can have an all-hands-on-deck moment. Governments, industry, the nonprofit sector, we need to all work together to build housing like it's a wartime effort to make sure that communities can maximize their output and that people are taken care of, whether they're vulnerable and need a roof over their head, or whether they're working-class people who need to be able to afford a home that they, uh, they can pay for with the paychecks they're bringing in. Uh, This is a moment where we want leadership from the federal government, and I'm very pleased to have been tasked with this enormous responsibility. Let's talk about what that leadership looks like then, because after the retreat on PEI, the Prime Minister on Wednesday talked about buzzwords and cautioned people to blame one segment of society or another, but he also said, end quote, brewing and developing over the past number of decades the housing issue. So if that's true, and your party's been in power since 2015, what's going to change with your approach to housing that has been part and parcel with liberal policy in the last eight years? Well, when we came into office in 2015, the focus on housing at the time was really on affordable housing for low-income families. And that was appropriate because for 30, 40 years, governments, and I should say both liberal and conservative governments, 
washed their hands of the housing conversation altogether. And we had several decades with no investment into social housing for those low-income families. The last couple of years, the dynamic has changed fundamentally. It's not just low-income families who need social housing that we got to be supporting. It's working-class families. It's seniors who are looking to downsize. It's students who can't find a place to rent near where they go to school. We need to recognize that sometimes households, even households that have two people working, still can't afford a place in the communities where they want to live and where they go to work. So we're going to have a change in focus to continue to do our work on affordable housing that we subsidize to make sure low-income families have a roof over their head. But we're also going to be taking a different approach to incentivize builders to put up units that are existing in the market, but at a price that people who are going to work can actually afford. This is not going to be an easy task because we've got to bring different levels of government with us. We've got to bring industry with us. We've got to bring the nonprofit sector with us. But with this change in focus to look at both the subsidized housing and market opportunities opportunities at a price point people can afford, I have faith that we're going to be able to have a meaningful impact so people can continue to live in the communities where they work and the communities where that they love. Partnering with the private sector, of course, is exactly where this conversation belongs, but let's just look at some of uh, cities across the country that are hyper-pressurized. Montreal. So they've got the requirement for approvals for any land development to include X number or percentage of affordable housing, and if you don't, you pay a fine. The developers are choosing to pay the fine every time. Why? Because the bottom line is what it is when they do what they see is in their best interest and the best interest of their shareholder. So how are you going to determine or to quote unquote dictate how a developer proceeds? Is it about cap on profit or is it about an incentive that has a very specific uh, targeted approach? Can you give us an example of what that relationship will look like? Certainly a starting point. Certainly. So look, there's no silver bullet here, but we get a lot of ideas that we're going to be looking to implement. It's going to change the equation so people can actually build units have a, a fair profit uh, without gouging the customer, but offering units at a price point people can afford, whether that's a traditional home, an apartment building, whatever it may be. Different communities have different solutions. But there's a couple of different things that I'm hearing loud and clear. One, the tax system in Canada is currently uh, making it difficult, as we've seen interest rates grow up, for developers to put up anything that isn't a luxury condo in some big cities. When they need to make a profit to justify an investment, they're looking at the highest profit margin that they can find. If we actually change the incentive structure to reward developers who are actually going to put forward uh, uh, projects that offer um, uh, units at a different price, homes at a different price than they otherwise would be able to, we can actually change that equation and make it more advantageous to build at a lower level. Just an example, so you know I'm not blowing smoke at you, uh, we made an announcement in Vancouver, I was there just a week ago, uh, where we're contributing uh, low interest financing for developers who agree not to put up social housing for the low income families in this instance, but actually build units that are based, uh, that has a rent that's based on the median income, what a person who's at the median income or a little bit below could afford. If we actually design programs that give favorable lending terms to developers or change the tax structure, we're going to be able to create opportunities for them to build at a lower cost. We also need to work with the sector to allow them to build more efficiently. That may mean bringing in the talent from other provinces or other countries that allow them to get the workforce that they need to build, and it may require us to incentivize innovation like modular housing. If we have more homes that are being built in factories and then assembled where they're going to rest, we can actually reduce the cost of building, which is going to allow people to build more starter homes, to build more rental apartments, which I know is a big deal in St. John's given the price of rent, and
and almost no vacancy that exists in this city as the school year is about to begin. If we change the equation, we can actually incentivize people building the kind of units that people can afford because we make it in their interest to do so rather than telling them to do it. Where would municipality and provincial uh, jurisdiction authority lie? Because, you know, there's been a a debate in some municipalities about even the appearance of tiny homes. But for some people, that's exactly all they need. So will the federal government, as part of this incentive, tell you that, yes, these manufactured homes will be part and parcel of your housing program going forward? It will be tiny homes. It will be these types of units. Is that, do they have any authority left with the federal government policy that you describe? So municipalities are in a position to control local decisions for good reason. Uh, Local communities know what works in their communities. We're not going to make effective decisions from boardrooms in Ottawa if we're not engaged with those communities on the ground. But when we work with and listen to communities rather than telling them what they have to do, we can actually establish incentives that cause them to change their zoning rules. Now, there's some unique uh, nuances to that in Newfoundland, in particular with St. John's, that may make it a little bit more tricky here than it could be in other cities. But the kind the things that we can uh, incentivize are making sure that uh, we allow more units to be built uh, on a particular parcel of land. This could open up opportunities for people to convert uh, uh, their home to include a secondary suite. When we're dealing with cities that have some transit opportunities near a bus or, or train station, we should be allowing people to build uh, uh, bigger buildings so more people can live at a place that allows them to get to work or to visit their family or to receive the services that they need. My view is that it's important to work with and coordinate coordinate the work that different levels of government are doing, and then incentivize financially or otherwise the kind of behavior change we want to see by transferring money to some of those good actors who are actually making the changes that will provide better housing options at price point that ordinary families can afford to pay for. I'm going to get to some other housing pressures, but of course, the federal policy is going to be tricky because the market in your riding versus the St. John's market is nothing like Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and the like $2,000 a month for 200 square feet in the east end of Vancouver is not the reality we're talking about here. So that's going to be complicated stuff. When the federal government is asked about, and it's there's not, not just one pressure point for housing, there's a variety of them, but supply and demand and based on the number of newcomers coming to the country, is part of it. And that's not to demonize or to uh, uh, focus on one segment of society or another, but it's a simple supply and demand issue. When asked, your government said, no plan on pumping the brakes or having a re-evaluation of the number of newcomers we hope to have, or your government hopes to have over the next number of years. Why not? Because even for the newcomers, the opportunity to put a roof over their head at an affordable price is part of their hope to move and hopefully set up shop here in Canada. So there's a couple of key points, and I think it's really important that we don't treat the solution to housing as as shutting the door on newcomers. Uh, The reality is this country was built on immigration. If you're not from an Indigenous community, your family came from somewhere else. Mine came 250 years ago from Scotland. There's some who've come from Afghanistan, Ukraine, Syria, and all over the world over the last couple of years. But the opportunity for immigration, as we know in Atlantic Canada, is actually going to help grow our economies. Look, eight years ago when I was a member of Parliament for the first time, the controversies in my community uh, for depopulation, when everybody, including me, moved out west to find work after they finished school, was that young families left and schools were closing. We lost the mental health unit at our hospital because one psychiatrist left. Now the challenges that we have are real. We have to build houses to accommodate all the people who are moving in. But I can tell you that's a better challenge to deal with than losing schools and hospitals because all of our kids are moving away. Certainly, but is it physically possible to accept 500,000 newcomers next year with the housing issues that are currently in place? 
play? I guess that's the question. Not about immigration bad. I see the societal and the economic upside to immigration, as I've long described on the show, but it's the timeliness of being able to build a home to accommodate anybody, whether it be someone born and raised in St. John's or someone coming from Ukraine. So can we actually physically, humanly accommodate the newcomers, as described by our government, as they come with the housing issue as it is today? Uh, yes, we can, and it's essential that we do. And the challenge that I agree with you on is that we have to do it in coordination with our housing and immigration policies. We have to recognize that when we bring more people into our communities, that puts pressure on the uh, absorptive capacity of the communities where newcomers call home. But the answer is to build more homes. We can do it, but it's going to take coordination amongst industry, amongst the nonprofit sector, across federal, provincial, municipal levels of government, and it's going to take serious investment. So the answer is to continue to welcome newcomers in an ambitious way who are key to save local businesses, key to grow local communities, and key to create opportunities for people who live here now, but we got to build homes for them at the same time. When I was wrapping up my time as immigration minister before I was transferred to this portfolio, we had just completed a strategic immigration review, the results of which are still to be published. But I can tell you one of the things I heard loud and clear is that people want us to coordinate our immigration policies with the other policy areas that are essential to support not just newcomers, but the people who live here now, particularly housing and health care. We need to continue to welcome newcomers who are going to help build the homes, but we have to make sure that local industry is developing quickly enough to accommodate those who are moving into our community. It's not going to be easy, but I have faith that we can do it, and I'm looking forward to the challenge. I just try to use numbers. Like, even if it's domestic birth rate, more people People, puts additional pressure on what are things that are already pressurized, whether it be housing or health care or daycare, whatever the case may be. They all work together. We don't have to break it down to where you came from, how long you've been here or what have you. Last one, but just given what you just said about immigration, at the same time, there was some comments coming from yourself and the government talking about the potential to put a cap on international students. Well, when people look at immigration, I mean, there's no better way for economic and population growth to, to be combined when advanced, or pardon me, uh, international students likely come for advanced degrees, engineering and medicine and science and mathematicians, what have you. Why is there any thought or have you revisited that conversation about a cap on international students? It sounds like a strange place to start capping or worrying about numbers. Uh, so, look, one of the things that people got to appreciate is the International Student Program makes extraordinary contributions to Canada. It's a, a sector that contributes more than $23 billion to the Canadian economy every year. Uh, it's uniquely positive for Canada. What we've seen in the last couple of years, though, is an explosion in the number of people who are coming to Canada, and not just in those advanced programs and in the sectors that we need most, but we've seen an explosion in certain parts of the country in particular, in programs or, or rather at private colleges that I'm convinced and not all private colleges are the same I should say but there are some of those strip mall colleges that have opened up just to take advantage of international students they're not supporting the students who come they're exploiting them for financial gain and I don't think that's fair I do think we need to work with institutions to make sure that we uh, continue to welcome people but at a rate that we can uh, manage uh, by continuing to work with institutions to build the housing that they need the cap on international students is one of many options that you could consider to address the issue but right now we're working on a trusted partner model with those institutions who are good actors who build housing for their students who welcome them into their communities and support them because the people who come are often our future canadian citizens they are our doctors they are our teachers they are our home builders if we continue to welcome people in large numbers through the student program or otherwise and we work with communities and institutions to support them as they come i have faith that we can continue to welcome people in significant numbers and we just 
just want to do it in a coordinated way. I don't have a problem with aligning our intake and immigration with the rate that we can build houses or provide services, but I just think we have to have a reasonable conversation about how we do it and how we partner with institutions to do it successfully. Very last one before you let it go, and we talk about incentives what have you. This is a question coming from a listener. Would there be consideration to drop the federal component of the HST for multi-unit development? We are looking right now at all of the options, including tax changes around the federal portion of the HST, but we've not made a final decision on the different policies that we're going to adopt. There's dozens of policy ideas that we are thinking on right now, and we're looking over the course of the next couple of months to rolling out the next version of the plan that we'll have to build more housing, including how we can most successfully change that financial equation for developers to encourage them to build at a price people can afford. The rules around GSD and HST are one one option, uh, but there's a series of different options, and we're going to be conducting an analysis to see what is the most effective measure we can put forward for the taxpayer dollars that we spend. We want to make sure we incentivize developers to build, and that's one of the ideas we're thinking on, and as soon as we come to a decision, I will be sure to let you know. I appreciate your time this morning, Minister. Thank you. A pleasure as always. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Sean Fraser, the Minister of Housing, Infrastructure, and Communities. If you want to talk about what you heard there or anything else under the sun, you can do it after this newscast. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the race director for the upcoming Coastal Ridge Challenge. That's Karen Saunders. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. We're just calling in to remind everyone of the Damnable Trail Festival that uh, it's happening again this year from September the 22nd to the 24th. Uh, it includes all of these four peninsula, plus it, it closes at uh, Glovertown. They also have a park. Uh, Patty, we want to invite everybody to come out and uh, enjoy the kick-ass live music food for both there's a adult and kids games i'm a bit nervous here this morning uh, take your time you're doing fine yeah, yeah um we'd like to talk a bit about the coastal ridge challenge which we started last year we capped it at 25 runners last year we had 23 all completed within the time limit of five hours this year we uh capped it at 50 our tickets sold out in less than 24 hours and we're runners from all over the country we're a little bit proud. Oh, I bet you are. It's a pretty nice route. I think it's some 22 kilometers in length, but running through like Happy Adventure and Salvage and other communities like that, it must be uh, eye candy. Yes, well, actually, it starts in Selvage, and it does a 15-kilometer remote coastal ridge trail, which is our largest in the system. Then they they come to Sandy Cove. They cross the beautiful Sandy Cove Beach. They do Old Schoolhouse Trail. They run through a heavy adventure, part of Eastport, and then they do three beaches to finish off at what we call Northside Beach in Eastport. It's uh, fantastic. The views, the runners were all, they were amazed. So, you know. But uh, we, we have so much more things, too, that we do here. We have a self-guided historical walk in Salvage. It's 12 to 4 on Saturday. It has a mix of history, music, and food. And last year, it was, I don't know, it's just overwhelming. The amount of people that walked the community uh, enjoyed the, the local music. We had fiddle playing at the museum. I think it's a wonderful thing that we've brought to the area, and I'm hoping that it just grows and grows. 
when is it? It's later in September, isn't it? September 22nd to the 24th. We have the opening on the 22nd at Chuck's Point. That's in the first community uh, in Sandringham on East Port Peninsula. And we got, like I said, live music. We got food. We got games for both the kids and adults. We've, we've, we've done a lot more this year, and hopefully it turns out a lot bigger than what it was last year. Though it was quite a success then. Beautiful part of the province, and hopefully it's a huge success again this year. I appreciate the time, Karen. Good luck with it all. Okay, thanks. And you're invited if you want to come, Patty. I love it. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. You're welcome, Karen. Bye-bye. It's Karen Saunders, race director for the Coastal Ridge Challenge. Let's go to line three. Bruce, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Uh, first time caller. Welcome. Yep. I'm calling about uh, injections for uh, arthritis there. Now, I was on it uh, a few years ago. My specialist put me on it, and my body got immune to it after three or four years. And three or four years after that, now I tried other drugs, and it didn't work for me. And my specialist returned me back on Emro again. And we went through the Newfoundland government to uh, see can we get a special authorization for to pay for the drug. And they will not pay for it a second time for me now. I'm just wondering if uh, any of your listeners out there have the same uh, problem that I have. So are these, what are they called, cortosteroid injections? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, it takes one every week uh, with Emro uh, to help me uh, with the pain and uh, discomfort and that. And, uh, like... I went through my MHA, uh, the secretary there in Lancelot, uh, and went to uh, Mr. Osborne and uh, come back and say they refused to pay for it a second time for me. What sort of associated cost comes with these injections? Uh, $1,800 a month. And I'm on disability. I'm getting $904 a month. And uh, I was on disability now over a year. Uh, only last month that I got a... Uh, prescription drug card to pay 80% on the other drugs that I'm taking, but they will not pay for my needle again or my injections. So are there options beyond these injections to manage your arthritis that is covered? Uh, if you were on something before, they do not cover the second time, and as of now, as now I'm very limited uh, what they got left to uh, for me to try. There's not much else for me to try. I went back on Emerald. The company, after giving me three boxes here and now, until see would the Newfoundland government help for to pay for it for me. But I'm not having no success with them at all. They said they will not pay for it a second time. And arthritis is a pretty common ailment in this province. That much we know for sure. Uh, Bruce, uh, I'll put it to those responsible for these types of uh, issues, notably, I guess, the minister responsible, because year over year they add things to the provincial prescription plan, which would this would be one of those uh, I'm sure they would be investigating given the prevalence of arthritis here in the province. I appreciate your time. Hope you're doing well. Anything else you'd like to say? Well, <laughs> there's not much else I can say. I just put it out there to see if anyone else having a problem. I, I'm having, like, I had arthritis since 99. I was diagnosed with it. And the specialist is off, or putting me on this drug. It's not just anybody who's putting me on this drug. And the government, for turning you down the second time, if you had cancer 10 years ago and you took treatment and it come back 10 years after, are they going to say, no, I'm not going to treat you for it because you was already treated for it once? No. 
Right. Uh, uh, do not make sense as uh, a fuller I got it from the specialist as all my reports is there. And I don't see a reason why uh, the Newfoundland drug card will not or the Newfoundland government will not give me a drug card for that. A special authorization is for it. And my doctor put it in the specialist and come back refused. Well, I will throw it out there, as you just did, to the listeners, anybody in the similar circumstance or what they've been able to find out or alternatives that have been helpful for their arthritis, which can be obviously debilitating, to say the very least. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Bruce. I wish you good luck, sir. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Yep, bye-bye. Yeah, I think I got a bit brewing in my hands. Uh, anyway, very quickly, the someone who lost their wallet at Coleman's on Mary Meeting Road, the person who found it has turned it into the desk at Coleman. So if you are checking your back pocket for your wallet that was once there and you think you might have lost it at Coleman's, the obviously an honest person has put it to the desk right there at the grocery store. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about sharing the harvest. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Hey, Tom, this morning about to give you an update about sharing the harvest. Uh, just a, uh, we're going to be starting up now with the big game season beginning in the second Saturday in uh, September. That's all of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I want to make sure to t- t- let the food banks know to apply for their permit to receive the uh, big game meat uh, in a legal fashion and as well in a timely fashion as well. Uh, like I say now, uh, last year we provided approximately 5,000 meals in big game meat alone, and we're hoping to do more this year. Okay, what does the permit uh, application process look like? Like, what do they have to satisfy? Uh, it's a basically a permit to uh, from, to apply to the Department of Wildlife to, for to make it legal for food banks to legally accept the big game meat. And they must have that permit in order to accept the big game meat. Yeah, um, I guess the question is, what do they need to have on their end to satisfy the permit parameters? Like, is it about freezers or training or what might it include? Yes, uh, they. Uh, I'm not quite sure on that end, Patty. I'm not sure enough to be able to uh, tell you, and I, I can certainly get the information to you at another point, though. Oh, I was just curious. I mean, I can certainly go directly to the Jody Williams of the world or what have you, because when we talk about the protein and the healthy uh, food that is game meat, it would certainly be a very attractive option when you go to the food bank and get to come home with some moose meat, No, no doubt about it. Absolutely, Patty. Uh, so this year now, so far to date, uh, we've we've uh, we've donated approximately seventy pounds, of, seventy bags of capelin. Uh, we have donated approximately fifty pounds of cod fillet. Uh, just recently, now we had a, an anonymous donation of a hundred pounds of cod fillet, which I've already donated. And uh, a lady called me up on the Facebook here last week. I have some chanterelle mushrooms. Do you take chanterelle mushrooms? I said, my God, I said, I don't know. I never even thought about that. I called Bridget Hope, and I found Leslie there. She said, absolutely, we'll take them. So we're branching into all different kinds of country food, Patty. It's really good to hear and, and see. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, uh, just trying to remind myself of what's involved in sharing the harvest, are there select abattoirs that are part of it, or is anybody able to simply dress the, uh, dress the moose themselves and make the donation? According to the program guidelines that we have to accept, it has to be a government-approved uh, process, or similar, say, with like holidays. 
Okay, because there's so many people dressed around moose, right? Uh, so, okay, I just wanted to get that out there for people who may be... On, on, that, point, on that point, though, Patty, on that point, if, uh, if I get a moose, Patty, and I'm confident enough to be able to do it myself, I can uh, cut the meat up myself and grind it. Because it's good for me, it's good enough for me. Shouldn't that be good enough for anybody else? Now, I'm not, I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way, Patty. In other words, why should why should the meat have to be done at a uh, at a government approved abattoir instead of just like it's always been? Well, that's that's the point I was making. The guy who's uh, so generous uh, with me, with moose and, uh, moose and rabbit and otherwise, he does a terrific job like any professional at any approved or accredited abattoir would be able to do. Uh, good morning to you, Frank. Hope you're doing okay. Yes. Anything else this morning, Barry? Uh, Patty, I'd like to give you a kudo, there, Patty. For after last week when I spoke, hung up, I didn't, uh, I didn't hear anything until uh, later on that night when I when somebody just suggested I listen to the show, and uh, you had quite a lot to say to DFO, and I commend you for that, Patty. Uh, what was that about? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we were talking about <laughs> we were talking about the fishery guardians. Okay. And, yep. then, we, and then we branched into the, uh, the food fishery and the uh, something else as well. Yeah, well, we're happy to talk about the reality and the progress and timelines and uh, everything else to do with every government agency, including DFO. Uh, I appreciate the kind words, Barry, and your time this morning. Thank you very much, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Good luck. Yeah, that's sharing the harvest. That's proven to be quite beneficial, no doubt about it. Uh, where would you like me to go here now, David? Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Kathleen. Bert, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do it. I'm, I'm a little concerned when I read this morning uh, a story in the Telegram by uh, Peter Jackson about uh, the World Energy GH2's impact statement. Um, it, ha- it, it raised a lot of red flags for me. Where would you like to start? Um, well, first of all, there were a lot of uh, people on the ground in Port-au-Port who were who had grave concerns about it. And when you look at the picture that they've got in the telegram of where these 164 um, wind turbines are going to go, I mean, it looks like the whole peninsula is is impacted. And um, then when he talks about uh, um, some of the um, sorry <laughs> um, engagement uh, public engagement uh, before this was all approved and um, uh, Peter Jackson says that even though the company cites 75 instances of engagement with stakeholders he says only a handful were actually public you know, public, open to the public. Mm-hmm. So that really concerns me because uh, a, a project of this scale should definitely go through some rigorous um, investigation, right, and, and impact assessment. And I think this is a case where our government needs to do uh, an impact assessment or a public hearing. And I think under our Environmental Protection Act, that is part of the thing that the minister can uh, call uh, or set up an environmental assessment board to have a look at things like this. Because 
let's face it, we don't know. This is this this whole project is very uncertain. We're we're going into an area that really isn't got a lot of background to it. Um, I know that they were supposed to be selling it to Germany, but Germany apparently is backing off from this now. The, the whole um, you know wind to ammonia project. So we're doing a lot of destruction to our province for what reason? For a few construction jobs and uh, and then a lot of. Uh, a lot of rape and pillage of our land. I, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I think it needs to have um, a very stringent public uh, environmental assessment. Okay. Just to, let's pick those uh, part one by one. So with the minister, absolutely has the capacity to call for public town halls and all that type of stuff. But at that point, we'd be asking the minister to answer for technical issues regarding a private sector company and a wind to hydrogen to ammonia project. So do we expect the minister to be able to answer those questions? Or are you suggesting that the minister call another one and have World Energy GH2 put the, for their technical experts, their environmental experts, the Folks are talking about vegetation and water management and waste when we talk about 500 employees, say, for instance, in the Codroy Valley with a housing set up for that purpose. So is that what you're saying, that the minister compel World Energy to do more public town hall consultations? Uh, well, sure, I'd be fine with that. But I think the minister can also appoint an environmental assessment board. So, okay. And that board can certainly consist of a lot of experts in the area, right? Certainly. And I, I, the standard process has been, and even if people might think it's convoluted, that the proponent do their own environmental assessment <laughs> as opposed to the other way around. When I get that concern, I completely understand where that thought comes from. Secondly, you talk about the business model. Do you think that if the group, the Royal Energy GH2, do not have a home for their product, that they would go ahead and spend billions of dollars to build it? Because John Risley's no fool. He comes with a lot of baggage, of course, in this province, and I understand where that comes from as well, but I haven't heard that the Germans have walked away from their uh, memorandum of understanding with John Risley's group. But do you even foresee an occurrence where he builds it with no market for the product? Uh with no market for the province? Yeah. Like you said, the Germans have backed away from their thirst for or want of. Well, from my understanding, this wasn't going to benefit the province at all, except for the, the construction jobs and building it. Yeah, no. I, am, am I mistaken? No, no, you're not. There's, you know, land lease uh monies there's water royalties which i think are very low and they don't even kick in until the company has recovered their initial investment which is a problem uh exactly. but you're right the, the product isn't intended for domestic use there's going to be some potential implications with our own grid uh which is absolutely something we should be discussing and debating my my question i guess or my comment was you said if the germans walk away from wanting to buy the ammonia do you think that Risley, World Energy GH2, and wherever he's getting the money will proceed without a secured market? I mean, very similar to like Muskrat Falls. There was no power purchase agreement with anybody. 
just us. We were told in no uncertain terms, we are the market for the power. And consequently, the crown built it. So that's very dissimilar to what Risley and his financiers would consider. If they don't have a secured market and a power purchase agreements, do you foresee them even building it for the sake of? Because we're talking billions of dollars. I don't have a crystal ball, but I do know that... Uh, I do know that decision, business decisions that affect the... the uh, Newfoundland taxpayer have been made many, many times without a proper information. And that's, I guess, what I'm saying is let's take the opportunity that we have right now to have a really good look at whether or not the pros outweigh the cons. Because from that story that uh, Peter Jackson did, it looks like the cons that were pointed out are all still there only they're going to be and mitigated, whatever that means. So are we prepared as a province to have a lot of destruction of our land for very little return? And we do have a, a choice now. We do have a chance now to have a really good look at it. The minister can call public hearings and can appoint an assessment board. So that's what I'm thinking that they should do. There is a required follow-up. We've actually invited World Energy GH2 back on the program to talk about it now that we have more information, even though it's pretty hefty, uh, 3,300 pages to try to digest. A lot of it is very technical, which is over my head, but I've asked some people who are much smarter than me to help me understand what I'm reading. And we're absolutely happy to have the minister back on because you're right. I think some of the problem here is twofold. John Risley himself, like in other parts of the province, say, for instance, in the Exploits Valley, they're really quite bullish on it. But it has a much different conversation there than it does on the Port of Port Peninsula. I think, one, because of Mr. Risley's involvement. And number two, with an industry in its infancy, we just don't know much about it. We don't know how it's going to look and feel and the impact it will have. We know a lot about oil. We know a lot about mining. We know about forestry. So we have built-in understanding of how that process works. With this, we have none because there's nothing to base it on. Yeah, exactly. We're happy to have both entities on again as soon as I'm able to legitimately formulate reasonable questions because I'm still trying to sift through the document and try to grapple with some of the technical implications. Yeah, that's the other thing that really concerns me because apparently since, you know, once they they publish this document, uh, there's only a 50-day window of opportunity to uh, respond to it. Yeah, the concerns me. Yeah, the public has until the 11th of October to do exactly as you describe, which is not a lot of time. Uh, I really appreciate you making time, Kathleen. Would you like to say anything else at all? Uh, No, I just just really hope the, the, the minister would see fit to do some public inquiry about this. Yes, I I really think that this is necessary. We've made too many mistakes in the past in this province, not looking at things deeply enough, and I think we have the opportunity now. We should do it. I appreciate your time, Kathleen. We'll do the follow-up. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, service dogs. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem at all. Uh, Patty, I want to discuss something very serious here, and I want every veteran who's listening to this program right now pay strict attention to what I have to say. This is very important. Okay. Um, 
Like I said, my name is Greg Jaynes, and I have a service dog, a certified service dog named Ace. Ace came from Illinois State Penitentiary, and he had two years, two and a half years of training, and he was paired with me. So I had Ace about five years now. Um, I live in Cornerbrook, where I'm originally from Virgil. I'm a veteran with 22 years of service with the infantry, PPCLI, and the Royal Canadian Navy. Patty, I live with complex, complex PTSD, and I was having trouble coping with my PTSD. So I reached out to my psychologist and my Veterans Affairs case manager, and she is rock solid. Uh, Patty, at that time, it was decided that, uh, that the uh, Atlantic Trauma Center would be a good fit for me located in Nova Scotia, just outside of Greenwood, Nova Scotia. It's owned by EHN Canada, a network of uh, treatment centers across Canada. Two weeks before my admission, I, uh, I completed a pre-admission uh, intake with an uh, intake officer, and I had made it very clear and aware that I was traveling with my service dog, Ace, so they booked me a private accommodation at the Atlantic Trauma Center. So, Patty, I left home on the 7th of August, and I arrived at the Atlantic Trauma Center on the 9th of August. So I drove uh, there with, with Ace. And uh, during my admissions, I, uh, uh, the executive director introduced himself, and he asked me if I would like to meet another service dog that was staying at the facility. And, and of course, I said, yes, I, I would love to. Um, Patty, as I approached this dog, uh, so-called service dog, it didn't appear, it looked like, it didn't hack like a service dog. So um, it had a collar that on it, on its neck that said, Sid service dog. So I put Ace in the lying position, and as the so-called service dog approached Ace, it broke from its uh, master, attacking Ace, grabbing him by the back of the neck. And um, this German Shepherd had to be beaten off my dog, uh, you know, to loosen his grip on ace it was apparent this was no service dog patty um this this service dog wouldn't a service dog would never lash out at anyone ace uh ace seemed fine and and did not suffer any uh, bite marks uh, but it was clearly he was shaken um he, he, he couldn't he couldn't uh he, he couldn't be complete with me um so i couldn't he couldn't do his job um after I completed my admission, I was moved to another facility uh, named Ligiel. Uh, it's about 15 minutes down the road. Uh, it treats, uh, uh, you know, drug addicts and alcohol, uh, people like that. They're, they're civilians. There was no military there. Um, there was no vets there. Uh, they put me in a house uh, by myself on the property where I was left alone for several hours, um, maybe five hours in that, right? So by myself. Uh, they took everything from me, anything that had a cord on it that uh, I could potentially harm myself. Uh, they took all that from me. So in this house, uh, it, it was being uh, constructed or whatever, or being refurbished. Um, I found several items. I found approximately 20 feet of uh, rope. Uh, there was, um, you know, box cutters and things like that and all kinds of sharp objects around, uh, tools laying around. So it was very apparent that this was a, a non-safe house for somebody who has complex PTSD, who was in need, and, and uh, you know. Um, so I was left alone to my own devices uh, for several hours, uh, like I said. And um, 
no supervision. No one never no never came and visit me. Um, so someone with a grain of common sense moved me to the private room in, in the in the facility. Um, and the executive director said at that time that I was to be moved to the Atlantic Trauma Center uh, Tuesday, twenty second of August, uh, to start my um, my trauma course. Uh, that's one full week of doing nothing here, Patty. Uh, the director uh, requested on uh, several times uh, that Ace not enter the dining room, and he asked if Ace would. Uh, would uh, you know remain in the room during our sessions? Which I replied, no. Ace goes wherever I go. He's a medical device that I uh, avail to, and I believe he took exception to that. So, Petty, when the twenty second arrived, I was packed and ready to go to the tra- to the Atlantic Trauma Center for for my uh, to meet my cohort. Uh, that the course was going to start the next morning. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, the executive director sent one of his lackeys to tell me that they would not be treating me because the aggressive dog that is at the Atlantic uh, Trauma Center, um, the non-service dog, they're saying he was there first. Patty, I was so devastated, my heart sunk, and I lost my spirit. I didn't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. Um, this facility has broken me down. I I came in. I will walk out of this facility more traumatized as I walked in. There was a contract signed that they would treat me. They they broke their contract. I started making calls. Daryl Sampson, the secretary and associate member for Department of National Defense. Um, he's, he's the minister of uh, the, he's the secretary to the minister of Veterans Affairs. He took little little interest in me, and uh, pretty much snuffed me off. So I contacted the office of Goody Hutchings. She's my uh, she's my MP. Who blew me off? So I contacted Peter Stouffer, who immediately took an interest in uh, in in this situation and gave me some some sound advice. Petty, I've retained legal counsel, and I feel that my rights have been violated, uh, my civil rights have been violated, and the Service Act, Act has been violated as well. I've launched, also launched a uh, complaint with the Nova Scotia government and with the Human Rights Commission. Petty, what I have experienced here in this past nine days has been nothing but misery. The executive director um, has something to do with me or whatever, but I have a right to be to be treated just like anyone else. But that's not happening. There is an investigation launched by the Veterans Affairs right now. Um, Patty, I am suing, suing this facility, and when I win, I am going to buy this facility. This is nothing but I want every veteran out there who's suffering with PTSD to know if you're looking for for treatment, do not come to the Atlantic Trauma Center. Are you there? Greg, I'm, I'm, I'm just listening to you, sir. I'm sorry to hear of your troubles. Just I was 
the issue with the other dog so is part of the message here not only the you know warning about going to this particular facility but we need to ensure that dogs are actually properly trained as service dogs whether it be certification or things that can't be replicated with uh, ids or collars or something because i've heard stories like this before which is really quite something if someone is willing to pretend that their animal is a service dog number one number two Uh, you want to pick up on that uh, yeah, uh, um, they're calling a comfort dog now. Uh, he has no certification. He has no papers. He has no vaccination papers and everything. And I yeah. warned them that if he latches, latches on to a, uh, um, you know, a staff member or a client, that, that, that they, they potentially can get sued. So this is a fake dog in order for this member to get a private room. Well, I, I get it. And that's the point I was uh, attempting to make. You say you also reached out to Peter Stauffer. He, I mean, what is he doing these days? He's no longer a member of Parliament, I don't think, right? He was an NDP member, really well-known, a uh, very collegial man who I've had the opportunity to speak with. What does Mr. Stauffer do these days? Um Peter Sofer will help veterans. He has a soft spot for veterans, and uh, he, he helps veterans all over. He advocates for veterans, uh, so he's uh, he's helping me along in in this uh, yeah in this scenario. So um, you know, Peter's been there often for veterans, so he's a good one to have my, in my corner. Well, hopefully he's able to get you some additional supports or put you somewhere where you can, your trauma won't be intensified like you described here this morning. Greg, I hope you're doing well. If the veterans who are listening would like to pick up where you've left off, they're more than welcome to call the program this morning, and I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you, Patty. I just want to say that uh, I was not treated like a, a veteran or a patient. I was uh, treated like a dollar figure. And that's inexcusable. It is, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Take good care of yourself. Okay, bye, you, bye, bye, Greg. Bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, affordable housing, where? Clarenville. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Brent. You're on the air. Hi, Brent. Yeah, yes, good day, Patty. How are you? Top shelf, man. How you doing? Oh, I'm number one, number one. Beautiful day here in Clarenville. Glad to hear it. That's good. Yeah, I heard some talk on your line there this morning about affordable housing in Clarenville. I'm not sure in this area. I'm not sure if there's much of it or if anything being done right now from Clarenville to Bonavista and different areas. So I'm a little bit invested in real estate and I do all right with it. But I uh, I wanted to get on before your buddy Pierre there. I, I met him here at the Legion in Clarenville before. He seemed like a nice guy. And uh, I got 30 acres agricultural lease land that I bought in 2016. So I bought a private sale, and it's right down in near George's Broke. Land right now is expensive to buy, but our government keeps saying that they have the farmland. But I believe it's $1 an acre, right? That they're basically giving it away. So I got the means to know how and the want to build affordable housing. In the past year, and that's what I would like to do down there, but but they won't let me, of course, which is unfortunate for the people that are looking for a place to live. Since 2016, when I bought it, I've tried many different things down there. 
I've tried chickens, cows, sheep, and I mean, with keeping a career and keeping a job, it all gets gets too expensive. So right now, I'm self-employed. I'm doing real estate, right? So, what's holding you back from uh, making this development a reality? What's exactly happening? It's agricultural land. Uh, oh, simple as that. Like I said, yeah. private sale, right? But yeah. they won't let me build nothing down there. But I mean, it's it's there's not a lot of land around. This this is the closest land to the town of George's Brook. So if they're gonna do and and it's all unused land around, like and they're talking about all this unused land that they got. Beautiful piece there. I, I got here. I, I'm after. I'm a hundred grand deep in on trying at the farming. Over the years, my own money from buying the land, trying the things, feeding the animals, la di da, it all gets very expensive. So right now, I, I've, I've tried many different things. When I'm talking, and I've applied for the funding, I've had the agricultural here in Clarenville tell me perfect candidate, already invested, no reason. Three years I've applied on that. I hear them come on there saying all this funding for new farmers. Well, I'm self-invested. And I've met, and I've, I've, I've had all of my documents checked over and looked at before they were sent off. All perfect, not a sound back. And I know there's a lot more people down around the Bonavista area, small farmers, all the same way. So, so that's not working for me. I've done that. I've spin my wheels there, and I and I bet and I thought of throwing more money down there. But then, on top of that, then I got the government coming to me last year saying that they're going to come take it all on me now because I'm not doing nothing down there. When here it is, I've been down there doing stuff for it all on my own. But uh, Just hold on a second, Brent. So when you're looking for agricultural supports, what exactly are you applying for? I've applied to just get the land cleared. Like, there's just supposed to be this $3,000 to get your land cleared off. I've applied for, for for lots of different things, right? All the different programs. I found out what was available to me when I had animals down there. But but to to start it off from the ground when you need to work and support a family, on top of it and keep everything else going, like to just feed the animals alone. You know what I mean? So farming hasn't been working for me. Okay. Land isn't land isn't cheap to get in the area. I don't see anybody focusing on on low income, right? For, for housing, I don't see anything on the go. There is a bit of stuff on the go here for seniors and stuff, but I mean, for the low income, so I, and, I, and I've contacted the rural development here. They pushed me towards the MHA. I've called that their office many times, left messages, wrote an email, detailed plan on what I, my story, on what I'm trying to do, and how I think I can help people in the area. Invested on my own money. It's like I don't know. I'm looking for. I'd just go down there, start building. Right now, I got some small one-bedroom apartments and stuff, and they rent like that, like so quick, right? So uh, the fellow needs to be down there and put some roofs over some people's heads who needs it. But for some reason, well, I know why because it's agricultural lease land. But I mean, I, was, I got a, I got a plan that I would like to see better for it. You know what I mean? Like we don't need land right now for for farming. What we need is houses for people with nowhere to live. That's right, and this one is a zoning issue, straight up. Uh, Brent, I appreciate the time this morning. i got to get to the news here. All right, then, sir, thanks for hearing me. Have a great day. Hopefully, Sierra will come that time today. You might remember meeting me down to the Legion.
<laughs> we'll, we'll see what he has to say coming up after the news. Thanks for your time. Good luck with it. Have a good day, Paddy. You too, Ben. All the best. Will I get Paul before we go to the news? All right, very quickly before the news break, uh, line number one, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation, Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and I'll try not to take too much of your time this morning. Uh, I just want to put in a bit of a plug for some upcoming fundraisers, if I can, please. Go right ahead. Okay, first off, our final drive-in bingo of the year is scheduled for next Wednesday, August the 30th. We've had two great events so far this year, and uh, hopefully this one will be uh, be the, the grand finale, if you will. Door gates open at 6 o'clock. Uh, we'll start bingo at 7. I think it's 12 games we have. We're guaranteed to give away $2,500 in prizes plus. We've got Nevada. We've got a 50-50 sweep. And next week we've also got a goods and service sweep with a $100 gift card from Coleman's. Um, so that's our final bingo of the year uh, in next Wednesday. Um, September has proven to be an interesting month for us. September is what I'm terming now as our walk month. Uh, normally we have our um, uh, Hope Always Remembering Renata Walk uh, here in St. John's in September, and on occasion we've had walks outside, but right now we have six walks scheduled around the province throughout September. Uh, the locations are available on our website, and pledge sheets are available by um, um, emailing info at edfnl.ca. Some of the locations include Happy Valley Goose Bay, uh, Grand Falls Windsor, Corner Brook, uh, St. Anthony and Marystown, in addition to the walk here in St. John's on September the 10th. So uh, anybody who wants an opportunity to provide some support from us, get together with a group of people. There are your locations, and we, we'd love to have uh, as many people there as possible. Final one I want to mention, and I haven't talked about this one on your show before, Patty, but our concert is back. Our Concert of Hope in October, and this year it'll be on October, Saturday, October 21st, at the Arts and Culture Center, featuring the Masterless Men and Friends. And we're absolutely delighted to be back. First concert since 2018, after holding about, uh, oh, I guess it was a dozen or more every year. So uh, tickets are available, of course, at the Arts and Culture Center box office for that one. So uh, exciting time, uh, busy month, throw in a golf tournament towards the end of September and the 50-50 sweep, and uh, it's busy times here. But uh, the one thing I would remind people is that every dollar we generate goes to serve the families and the individuals who are dealing with an eating disorder in this province. And uh, the numbers that we understand are in the 40,000 range of people at any given time are dealing with this serious mental health illness. So we appreciate all the support we can get, and uh, we look forward to seeing lots and lots of people between uh, bingo, our walks, and the upcoming concert. I wish you good luck with it all. As you know, Paul, I'm late for the news, but appreciate the time. I, I know. Thanks, Pat. Sorry about that. No problem. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Paul Toomey at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Time for the news. When we come back, we have an opportunity to speak with the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. That's Pierre Poliev. Right after this, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Conservative member for Carleton. That's in Ontario. He's the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. That's Pierre Poliev. Good morning, Mr. Poliev. You're on the air. Great to be with you. Happy to have you on. Your office reached out in the, based on a press release you had regarding housing, which is a national story, in some people's minds a national crisis. Your approach different from the Liberals, how? Well, uh, first and most obviously, when I was the housing minister, 
rent and mortgage payments were half of what they are now. Uh, after eight years of Trudeau, the rent is double. The needed mortgage payment on a new home is doubled. The needed down payment has doubled. In fact, our housing is now among the most expensive in the world. In fact, the uh, IMF says that Canada has the riskiest mortgage debt of any country in the OECD. The average home here now costs between 50 and 75 percent more than in the United States. Uh, Toronto is the most inflated housing bubble on earth, according to UBS Bank. And Vancouver and is the third most unaffordable market in the world. So this really is a uniquely Canadian problem that is new after eight years of Trudeau. What is the cause? Two things. Uh, massive deficit spending is driving up interest rates on mortgage payments. And two, uh, bureaucracies are blocking home building. So on the first, uh, I plan to cap government spending in a root out government way so we can balance the budget and bring those interest rates back down. Uh, secondly, I... Let's stick with number one, if you don't mind. Let's dig into number one a little bit yeah. further. So we're talking about cuts somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 billion if we're going to balance the budget. The forecast deficit next year, about $35 billion. So it's fine to have caps on spending. It's fine to try to balance the budget. But in this circumstance, it comes with one or two features. It's an increase in taxes, which I know you plan not to do. But then it comes with cuts. Where do we start with cuts? Because $40 billion is a big number. So there are things I will eliminate. The $35 billion infrastructure bank, which after five years has not completed a single infrastructure project, that's gone. The uh, ArriveCan app, gone. The uh, high-priced consultants who, ch who charge $5,000 a day for one consultant and have now added uh, an annual cost of $21 billion, or 1400 bucks per family in Canada. Uh, that will be significantly drawn back. Uh, that's, by the way, we we're spending twice as much on uh, contracting out to consultants as we did eight years ago, um, even though the public service is 50% bigger in itself. I bring that work back into the public service, have the bureaucrats do the jobs rather than the high-priced Toronto consultants like McKinsey. So there are some obvious examples that I'll tell you how I'll manage it, though. I'm going to pass a dollar-for-dollar dollar law that requires every time a politician announces a new dollar of spending, they have to find a dollar of savings to pay for it. That's how you run your household. That's how a single mom balances her family budget. It's how a small business pays its bills. Uh, politicians should have the same trade-offs and discipline, and that's what they'll be forced to do under the law, and that's how I'm going to balance the budget to bring home lower inflation and lower interest rates. Would it include cuts to things that are already in place, and recently so, for instance, na the National Dental Care Plan? We're, we're right now uh, reviewing that proposed that proposed plan to figure out if, uh, how many people are actually benefiting and also trying to make sure that it we get the maximum bang for buck because provinces also have their own programs. So how do we make sure that the federal and the provincial dollars work together to benefit the most people at the lowest cost to taxpayers? So we, our platform will address that uh, when, uh, when I run on a common sense plan of the election. Would it include adjustment upwards of age of eligibility for things like CPP, all age security, guaranteed income supplement, and would there be cuts to those amounts? No. 
let's get back to the housing because this is something that we all really want to focus on. We actually had the housing minister, Sean Fraser, on earlier in the program. You're talking about things like withholding transfer of funds to municipalities if they don't build as many homes and the types of homes that you and your government think are required. What does that look like? Because Vancouver is not Toronto, it's not Calgary, it's not Montreal, it's not St. John's. First of all, it's not houses that I think are necessary. It's the houses that Canadians think are necessary. Uh, we have, uh, after eight years of Trudeau, a doubling in housing costs. One of the reasons is that we have the fewest homes per capita in the entire G7, even though we have the most land to build on. Why? Because it's, we're the second slowest place to grant a building permit. Montreal blocked 24,000 homes in the last several years. Winnipeg tried to block 2,000 homes right next to a transit station that was specifically built for those future homes. Vancouver, the bureaucracy there adds $1.3 million to the cost of every newly built home. These are massive costs. In fact, the biggest cost input for housing today in Canada is not labor, land or lumber it's government bureaucracy and taxes trudeau's built up that bureaucracy by giving these incompetent municipal governments more and more federal dollars my uh, common sense plan is to link the number of federal dollars for municipal governments to the number of houses they allow to be built so i will require they permit 15 percent more home building per year or i will withhold some of their federal funding those that beat the 15% target will get a building bonus. Every federally funded transit station will be required to have apartments around it. I'll sell off 6,000 federal buildings and thousands of acres of federal land that we can use to build, build, build. And finally, I'll back the trades. We can't just give all of our education money to the professions and the universities. We also have to tra- train the folks who build homes. More boots. You talk about Montreal. Interestingly enough, in Montreal, regardless of the number of houses that were not approved, even when the requirement for developers to have blended homes, you know, whether it be for bigger, more expensive homes and affordable units, they just went ahead and paid the fine because the bottom line didn't display, you know, the need for affordable units in their plan. So I wonder how that would work. When you talk about incentives regarding the transfer of uh, monies to municipalities, and you use the word gatekeeper on many of these fronts, does your plan, in essence, make you de facto the gatekeeper? No. I'm the guy who's opening the gates because I'm going to say to the cities, we're not going to fatten up your bureaucracies anymore so you can block home builders. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was in a coffee shop in Ottawa. Builder comes up to me three days ago. He said, I want to build 2,000 homes. I was told I'd have my permit by May. And then it was June, and then it was July, and now we're August, and I called in, and the planner's gone on vacation for two more months. Well, there's 2,000 families without a home because he can't build them, and there's no one else that can replace this vacationing planner. I'm not going to stroke the city of Ottawa, another big fat check to pay the planner to go on vacation while 2,000 people sit around looking for a home. We need faster permitting. They have they do this in other countries. That's why housing is so much more affordable in other parts of the world. Do you know you can buy a castle in Sweden for the price of a two-bedroom home in Toronto? 
Toronto is out of control. Average price for a single detached home is in and around a million dollars. When you have the price breakdown, as you described, you know, for labor costs, materials, you say bureaucracy is the most expensive. Based, based on what? Can you share numbers, whether it be on a single detached $350,000 home, or as you described, the bureaucracy to be the most expensive because materials are out of control. Uh, labor increase, the cost is very, very real, as I've personally experienced myself. So how, how did you arrive at the bureaucracy being the most expensive? The C.D. Howard uh, study on it, and I have the numbers right here. Okay. So if you look at, for example, the cost components of a new single detached home, uh, from 2011 to 2021, in Vancouver, barriers to supply amount to $1.3 million for one home in Vancouver. Profit amounts to, and I'm looking at a bar graph, so my numbers are not to the, down to the dollar here, but the, the normal profit is about $70,000. The normal land cost is about $150,000, and then construction is about a, just over a half a million. So that's, for, that's just Vancouver. Uh, Toronto, um, the cost of government is about $350,000. So that compares to profit of about 50 to 80,000 and land cost of about uh, 30,000. So I mean, this is a CD House study. Um, and it demonstrates this is a particularly acute problem in the biggest cities. Mm -hmm. Some of the smaller cities are not as bad. Um, But here's the problem. These gatekeepers in the big cities hurt people in small towns because what I call price radiation. The price goes up in Toronto, so people move out to, further out to the suburbs. Prices go up in the suburbs, so people move further away. And so you go to Halifax, you'll find Torontonians now because people moved further and further, not just out of their city, but out of their province to escape the crazy prices. And what does that do? Bids up prices in other cities. So people across the country are suffering because big city gatekeepers block housing construction and make it impossible for us to get things built in this country. That's why Canada's housing costs are so much worse than almost every other country in the world and way worse than they were eight years ago. The Prime Minister has often taken to task with a comment he made about he doesn't think much about monetary policy versus fiscal policy, and I know why people you know, scoff at that. When you talk about mortgage rates and the pressures therein, because now with the inability to get into a home, especially if it's your first home, that rental churn has kind of come to a standstill. But when we talk about things like inflationary pressures, whether that be on labor, materials, and otherwise, do you think we do a good job describing the pressure points of inflation? Because in the future, in an effort to control inflation, as opposed to simply pulling the lever at the back of Canada to increase uh, increase interest rates, which comes with like 18-month turnaround before that has any pressure, you use the word just inflation. And spending is absolutely part of the inflationary pressures. Do you think in an effort for Canadians to understand inflation, when we compare countries like you, like you just did there, across the G7, the G20, the inflation they experience, should we have a better well-rounded uh, conversation here? Supply chains as well as in addition to federal government spending, because I think people have a quasi-idea of what's causing inflation and maybe not enough policy at the federal government level to do a better job controlling it, because we're simply focusing on government spending. Your thoughts? Government spending is the only cause. Uh, It is the only cause of inflation. And if you look at the countries that have the worst inflation, it's the countries that have spent the most money. And Canada, we have the worst inflation by far in the G7 when it comes to housing. Uh, But other countries, you're right, other countries have been just as stupid as our government. Uh, The American government, the British, the uh, European Central Bank, they've all printed money. 
unnecessarily, irresponsibly, and so they all have inflation. But as our mothers taught us, just because our friends are jumping off a bridge doesn't mean we have to jump off a bridge, too. Just because other governments have done stupid inflationary money printing and deficit spending doesn't mean we have to. We can do otherwise. And that's what I will do. I'll cap spending, cut waste, balance the budget. And, and, you, and the central bank under Pierre Polyev will be independent. And it will have one job, protect the purchasing power of our money by keeping inflation low, not printing cash for politicians to spend as it's done under Justin Trudeau. If the Bank of Canada was to be fully independent, given some of the comments you've made over the past about their hesitancy to rise uh, interest rates and making very direct requests of or demands of the Bank of Canada, that would change if indeed you were sitting in the PMO. Yeah, I, I don't think the government, uh, the, the role of the bank is not supposed to be to print money for politicians to spend, but that's what they did. Here are the facts. Since 2020, our money supply, that is the amount of bills, coins, and bank deposits, has gone from $1.8 trillion to $2.4 trillion. That's a $600 billion increase in the amount of money in our economy. So our money supply grew by 32%, while the real economy grew by 4%. So the money that buys goods is growing eight times faster than the goods it buys. That's why we have this out-of-control inflation. If they had just kept the money supply growing at at the real growth of, of the economy, then we wouldn't have inflation today. So they are ruining our money to fund Trudeau's spending. I want the Bank of Canada to do what it did for 25 years, from Mulroney to Cretchen to Martin to Harper. One policy low inflation and in that time inflation stayed at 1.8 percent for a quarter century let's get back to that common sense low inflation strong money policy and that's what pierre polyev will deliver you back out housing and energy inflation is a curious number and a floating target it's one thing to have it in and around went from 2.8 to 3.3 but it's the food inflation that's really crippling people doesn't matter who people are going to vote for what your political ideology or leanings are we all have to eat what can be done in the world of the grocery store grocery stores Ax the tax. Ax the tax. Ax the tax. Trudeau's carbon tax, which is now about 14 to 17 cents a liter, he wants to raise it to 61 cents a liter. What is the senior in Cornerbrook going to do when she has to choose between eating and heating because Trudeau has hit her with a carbon tax uh, supported by Goody Hutchins, Hutchins on her heat, her gas? and on groceries. Now, it is a food tax because farmers use fuel. You have to, you, you tax the fuel of the farmer who makes the food and the trucker who ships the food. You tax all the, the who buy the food. food. Now, Pierre Polyev will ax the Trudeau tax to bring home lower food prices. What percentage are you using, say, for a two liter of milk or a bag of apples or whatever the case may be regarding the implication of the carbon tax? I don't have a percentage for each product. It's not. It's very difficult to know exactly what what the contribution is, but it's common sense. Let me give you an example. I was in uh, PEI the other day, and I was speaking to a potato farmer, and he sp- the cost of running his tractor went up sixty dollars an hour since the introduction of the carbon tax in Atlantic Canada in early July. Sixty dollars an hour in higher fuel prices. 
as a result of the carbon tax. You think that farmers can eat all that cost? Of course not. He has to pass it on in higher potato prices. It's very simple. Somebody's got to pay the piper. And right now, Atlantic Canadians are paying for Trudeau's tax, which I'll axe. What would you do regarding the price point? Um, a price on pollution, curiously, it's not that long ago in a pretty infamous interview between then uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Peter Mansbridge talking about specifically the Alberta carbon tax. That's a model we can build on. And so he's, you know, there was thoughts of market pressures being the conservative go-to. You know, the market will sell and solve most, if not all. So if not a carbon tax to influence or to encourage a different type of behavior and consumption, alternative forms of energy, your plan talks about incentivizing. What does that mean? Because is it any different than, for instance, the clean tax, uh, the clean tech tax that's now in place in the most recent federal budget? Or what exactly are you pointing to? First thing we need to do is, is get the government out of the way and green light green projects. We have the second slowest building permits in the OECD, which stops us from developing clean green energy. For example, Nova Scotia was waiting six years for a fisheries and oceries approval for tidal wave power, which would have used the the forces of the ocean to run through turbines and send electricity into the grid to replace dirty coal fire. Well, six years went by, no approval, the project was cancelled. I would have greenlit that project to let Nova Scotians power their grid with the oceans. Uh, Same goes for nuclear power. We all believe in safety and environmental protection, but why does it take 15 years to do that? What do we learn in year 14 of an environmental and safety review that we can't learn in year one and two so that we can get small modular nuclear reactors that provide, provide zero emitting power onto the grid as proposed by New Brunswick, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta? I would green light those projects faster. I also green light carbon capture and storage so the Western Canadian producers can put the the carbon right back in the ground where it came from. Those are the kinds, that's how we green light green energy so that we lower the cost of zero emitting energy rather than raising the cost of traditional energy we still need. I'm not so sure carbon capture and that type of technology is as green as is proposed. There's lots of research out there that says, for starters, not all carbon storage is created equal, and in some cases more emissions than other traditional methods of dealing with uh, carbon emissions, which is curious stuff. I wish we had more time, but I just want to see if I can put this all into one question. With housing-related matters and decision-making that you would bring to bear, different than the current federal government. With things like telling your MPs they'll never be allowed to go to the World Economic Forum, even though conservatives, including yourself and former Prime Minister Harper up until 2016, were doing exactly that. I'm not sure what changed. And then things that it seems like there's more of a consolidation and centralizing of power in the Prime Minister's office, which I think, regardless of political leanings, Canadians really don't like, because that's brought us more problems than it ever has solutions. Do you think that your plans and combination really do speak to consolidating power in your office if indeed you are elected and become the premier or the prime minister, pardon me? No, the opposite. I want to, I want the prime minister and the federal government to have less power and individual Canadians to have more freedom. We'll have a smaller government with bigger citizens. Less money for the government means more money in the pockets of the people who earned it. Lower taxes to reward hard work and for small businesses to grow and hire 
axe the carbon tax to lower prices, cap spending, balance budgets to bring down inflation and bring up purchasing power, and remove government bureaucracy so that we can develop more oil and gas in Newfoundland and replace overseas oil, uh, develop clean natural gas, and build things by bringing home our paychecks. That means more power for Canadians and less power for the government, including for me. Mr. Poliev, I wish we had more time. It really feels like you're aggressively on the campaign trail. When do you anticipate we'll see a platform? It's a critically important role being in opposition. We need political parties to hold the governments to account. It's one thing to oppose, another to propose. Do you, do you foresee a short timeline where we'll see a real detailed platform where, where we can all dig in and evaluate where, who we want to vote for and questions that we can possibly ask? Well, it will depend on when the election is held, but I can tell you this. It will be a common-sense platform based on five major pillars, bringing home lower prices by axing the tax and balancing the budget to to reduce interest rates, bringing home powerful paychecks with lower income taxes that reward hard work, and by allowing, for example, our brilliant immigrants to take a test, prove they're qualified, and get to work as doctors and nurses in our healthcare system, it'll uh, incentivize cities to speed up and lower the cost of building permits for homes so we can bring the homes that you can afford. We're going to bring home safety with jail and not bail for repeat violent offenders and treatment, not drugs, for people hooked on drugs. We're going to bring home uh, the Canada that we know and love, where hard work pays off with a powerful paycheck that buys decent food, a good home, a solid retirement in a safe neighbourhood. Hopefully we can do this again in the near future, because even what you just said there, I would have another handful of questions, but I appreciate you making time for us this morning. Absolutely. I'm always happy to join you. Take good care. That's Pierre Poliev. He's the uh, Conservative member for Carleton, and of course, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Time for the news. Don't go away. Join Craig Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to Claire Perry. She's a seismologist with NR Kang. Good morning, Claire. You're on the air. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, there's been lots of stories about some rumbles, whether it be off the coast of this province, and it seems like fairly active seismic activity in many parts of North America. What can you tell us first off about what's going on, on in our waters? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's any more seismicity than, than what we would normally expect in the region. So um, as far as Newfoundland goes, most of the seismicity is located to the southeast, um, as well as some to the uh, northeast. Um, and this seismicity, um, as you may well know, has been the seat of um, a very important and larger earthquakes in the past. Um, and notably, most of us think about this 1929 uh, magnitude 7.2 event that occurred um, near the Barren Peninsula, just south of the Barren Peninsula, and resulted in 28 deaths and um, extreme damage throughout the region. Um, recently, um, if we look at numbers and statistics in terms of um, earthquake hazard and number of earthquakes in our catalog in the more recent years, um, we see generally about a two, two and a half or so magnitude four earthquakes per year offshore in Newfoundland, and maybe about 12 uh, magnitude threes might be expected. So these would be felt uh, on on land, and they are associated um, with um, with uh, deep faults, 
that were caused by risking that as the Iapetus Sea was closed around 425 million years ago. And that's associated with um, risking in the St. Lawrence uh, Valley, um, extending out to the, to the Atlantic Ocean. Where on the Richter scale would it become problematic? You know, you spoke to the one very serious uh, earthquake which had devastating circumstances and uh, outcomes here on the island itself. So at what point, at what measurement of severity does it because become a potential problem on land? Yeah, so so the the um, oddity a little bit with the um, Newfoundland earthquakes is that they're offshore, of course. So this this is a good thing in that it gives us more time to prepare if we feel an earthquake, a P wave, that's the initial wave that don't really cause damage, we might have time to to run to higher ground, et cetera, before the damaging S waves were to arrive. Um, so, so this, in a sense, the fact that it's offshore gives us a little more time to, to prepare. But what it also um, means is that there's a risk for tsunami. Um, and this is what happened in 1929. We had this earthquake, a, a large magnitude earthquake, just um, off the uh, Laurentian slope. Um, which caused, uh, you know, very significant shaking in the near vicinity. Um, and then it was followed by a very large marine land slump slide that was associated with about 200 cubic meters of sediment. So that's really big. And it was that landslide following the earthquake that caused the tsunami. Um, so at what point do we expect damage? Well, we wouldn't expect damage generally for anything magnitude 5, and below, um, and we could even probably go up to nearly a six as long as it's offshore. Uh, the real problem be- becomes apparent when we have this um, this double uh, double event, which is the earthquake causing shaking along the slope where we have heavy heavily laden sediments and a huge um, and very steep change in, in uh, the symmetry offshore, and that can really. Um, be a potential for hazard and destruction on the land. Is there a difference in er, uh, earthquake early warning and forecasting or predictability on land versus on the seafloor? Yes, yes there is. So currently um, Natural Resources Canada is deploying its, um, its national earthquake early warning system and this means deploying uh, land sensors, these are accelerometers, across the country in regions of uh, deemed high seismic hazard. So typically on land, these are um, offshore um, uh, Vancouver onto the island and the Vancouver mainland, as well as regions such as um, Charlevoix, the lower St. Lawrence um, uh, seismic zone, and the Ottawa Bumshare Graben. With the offshore implication, you know, within the world of tectonic shift, is there something that man does, whether it be on land or offshore, for instance, drilling or any other man-made activity that influences the potential or increases the risk of earthquake? Well, there's always that potential, and we see that um, onshore in regions such as Alberta. We do see things like um, hydraulic um, uh, fracturing and things of this sort um, that are, uh, you know, anthropogenic um, induced events that would cause, often cause earthquakes where we wouldn't otherwise expect them. So this could also uh, be the case offshore um, during uh, at offshore oil um, extraction operations. Um, but these are rare; they have been rare in the past offshore. Um, 
what we really um, need to be looking for in the future is uh, once we get these land seismometers, uh, accelerometers installed as part of our early warning system, ideally we would have the investment to install some ocean bottom seismometers because as soon as we get an instrument that um, is located very close to the epicenter, that gives us all the more time to prepare and all the more time to send out warnings to the um, populations surrounding the event. Do we employ anything regarding building codes or what have you regarding earthquakes in this country? Because I know in California, along the San Andreas Fault, there's very strict building code issues. Is there any such thing in Canada? Yes, yes there is. And in fact, um, the division um, in which I, I work, that's the Canadian Hazards Information Service, we're part of Natural Resources Canada. Um, we are in charge of informing the National Building Code of Canada as to um, earthquake hazard, seismicity, um, and sometimes that ports also into questions of risk when we're looking at populations uh, that are at risk of earthquakes and losses associated with them. Um, so yes, our, our group works very closely with, um, with engineers um, across the provinces uh, who, who work to, to build this building code um, into, into, uh, into law, that, and, and in fact it protects Canadians across the country. Uh, we're just about out of time, but this one's more out of my own personal uh, curiosity. What's the mm-hmm. most severe regarding magnitude earthquake in our history? Well, in our, I would say in our modern history, this uh, Grand Banks earthquake in 1929 was the best recorded one that we have in modern history. Um, in the East, we also have um, um, the 2012 Haida Gwaii earthquake, which oh. was just offshore to the west of Haida Gwaii in 2012, uh, October 2012, and that was a 7.8 magnitude, so very large. Uh, there was a tsunami that followed um, that event. Um, luckily, uh, there were no major populations. However, there were some um, um, indigenous um, communities that were located fairly close by, felt, felt shaking, um, and uh, no one was directly affected by the tsunami wave. Interesting, because that 7.8, that feels a lot like the severity, if I remember correctly, I don't know much about this, but and not the San Andreas Fault, but the Queen Charlotte Fault in the early 1900s in San Francisco, that massive earthquake, that was in and around 7.8, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes, and we have many more. You know, there's the Cascadia um, in the 1600s, the 92.9, that what we call the, the mega, mega, uh, Cascadia mega earthquake, um, but also uh, many, many more in our um, oral history beneath Montreal, Quebec City, but these were not uh, recorded with modern-day instruments. So, so if we really want to focus on the, the most modern-day ones, that would take us back to 1929 uh, Grand Bank earthquake and then the Haida Gwaii 2012 earthquake. Fascinating. Very quickly, from a listener, is there any increased activity, seismic speaking, anywhere around the island and or Labrador at this moment compared to years no. past? Nope. Nope, everything you know looks as we would predict um, statistically. There are some anomalies as we go year to year. Sometimes we'll have a larger event that will be followed by aftershocks. Uh, that's a normal occurrence. Um, but if we look at the grand, in the grand scheme of things over you know, 50, 100 years, uh, we're still within what we would expect in terms of seismicity in the immediate region of Newfoundland. Nice to have you on the show this morning. Claire, appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
That's uh, Natural Resources Canada, seismologist Claire Perry. Final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Where to, David? Let's see here. Let us go to line number two. Line number two it is. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, are you there? Yes, I'm listening. <laughs> okay. I wasn't sure if it was me or not. Um, I want to speak about, um, I guess, sort of the elephant in the room from HMP. Um, I have a family member that is at HMP, and yesterday it came out that there was an inmate that passed away there. Uh, So, you know, being a concerned person, um, I felt the need to call in and check to see if my family member was okay. So when I called, no one would tell me anything. No one would say, all I needed was a simple yes or no to see if this person was okay because it it kind of made me very nervous. Couldn't get an answer. But besides that, I have been calling for months down there and they have lines set up, uh, like you press one for one division, you press two for another division. One of the uh, divisions or phone lines is the medical unit. The medical unit is full. The medical unit line you can't leave a message on it's been that way for months so if you're a family member or someone concerned about someone at hmp you can't get any answers even their lawyers can't get them i mean it's i guess it just boils back to staffing i heard a lawyer in the media saying that you know there was a possibility to miss court dates because they couldn't get in contact with their client and consequently beyond missing court dates you know representing someone who you haven't had a chance to speak with face to face or even on the telephone to get it on the same page i mean there's an obvious problem here yes and i am glad you mentioned the staffing problem which is the elephant in the room I'm not going to go into details, but I currently have a court case going on myself, and it involves a person that is involved with HMP, and a person, I'm going to say it because I'm just, I'm not going to hide it, who was very abusive in my last workplace. And this person is a person that they have that has a reflection on every inmate, I would guess, or has say in inmates there which in my opinion shouldn't should never if if this person is going to be abusive with an everyday person or an everyday employee i cannot see this person having compassion for inmates that deserve the compassion they need the help with now i i get what people are going to come out and say oh well there are people there that deserve to be there and i agree with them 100 percent. i agree that there's people in jail that deserve to pay time for their crime do what they have, but there are also people at HMP that shouldn't be in HMP. They should be in a hospital. Well, there's long been a thought that there needs to be a mental health ward or wing or whatever the right word is in all penitentiaries because look, we're told by people who work in the court system in particular, lawyers and uh, sheriff's officers and judges, they'll say that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of people going through the turnstile are dealing with a mental health issue and or an addiction. So simply locking them up, not so sure we're actually satisfying even the punishment phase of uh, serving time for committing a crime because no matter how you slice 
deficit, they're getting out. If they come out worse than they went in, that's in no one's best interest. Even the folks who are tough on crime, kind of politically leaning, if that's the case, then we're not doing ourselves any favor as a society, let alone, Absolutely. you know, whether or not you care about inmates. You know, I don't know how people can't you know, wrap their mind around that because that is the undisputed fact. If you're in HMP, you're getting out someday. And the hope is that on top of punishment, there's a, some sort of rehabilitation associated with your time. Absolutely. And the elephant in the room is, I want to go on another level with this, when employees speak up, including employees at HMP, including, including employees all through government, I'm the one, per, I'm a person that spoke up. I have been over 10 years speaking up about stuff that is happening behind the walls of offices within government that need to be told, and I was a person that was targeted because I told the truth about situations when it affected my job. If you are a person working within these walls and you speak up about something that is not right, you are targeted, and then it just, it's a, just a domino effect. Um, and I believe that that is a reason for the shortage of staffing in a lot of departments because you can't. I mean, as the employee, you're the one doing the job. You're the one who sees the red flags and everything that's going on. If you can't tell the truth about things and you can't have it addressed because higher management doesn't want to know it, it's just going to have a domino effect and everything is going to fail. It's always the case, regardless of what we're talking about. And, you know, it's an environment that doesn't look very appealing to me as a potential correctional officer. I know some people are built for it. I don't think I am. And I've only been in there. I've been in there twice, uh, just on tour, not incarcerated. And I'm telling you, until you see it up close and personal, you can't necessarily wrap your mind around just how horrid it is. Look, And again, it doesn't and it should not be the Ritz-Carlton, but it's a dungeon is not doing us any favors as a society. It's just not, and that's not me being soft on crime. Let's just talk about the reality of what we see. If it becomes a revolving door and you are more violent and prone to committing more serious crimes upon your release and or your mental health has further deteriorated and or you got no help with your addiction, what do you think is gonna happen? Exactly. I'll get the uh, pushback and the criticism for this, but I'll take it happily. And I appreciate your time. Would you like to say anything else quickly before I uh, slip one more on? Well, I'm, I, I would absolutely like to call back and see some of that criticism myself because it's time, it changes, it's time it changes for employees. I know correctional officers, I know deputy sheriffs, I know some of them very well. And I know other employees all across government that wanted to reach out and make things right with higher management and ministers and deputy ministers and even the premier. And they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to know, and they're told. You're told by your union. They don't want to know. Your call is uh, more than welcome uh, next week or whenever you have time. Thank you very much, You're Pat. welcome. Take care. You too. All, All right. right. Bye-bye. That's where it goes to line four. Noah, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. We're running out of time, so you go right ahead. Uh, just calling in today. Uh, I emailed you there a day or so ago about the... Uh, Looking for the uh, rentals there on the west coast in Stephenville. Yep. Been looking now for the last uh, five or six months and calling calling around. I even reached out to a local realtor in the area, and I just 
cannot find anything. And it's, it's really concerning to me because I'm looking at going over there for a post-secondary uh, trade program, actually. And I'm just wondering if anyone perhaps happened to be listening today or, or perhaps I could make a connection through your show there. Happy to help. So describe what you need. Do you need like a standalone one-bedroom apartment? Are you willing to rent a room in someone's home? What do you need? Uh, preferably, I would be looking for a one-bedroom apartment, but I mean, whatever is available at, at this point, like a boarding room, like you mentioned, I'd be willing to consider anything at this point. Well, I tell you what, uh, I have your email address because we did exchange emails uh, recently. So if anyone in the Stephenville area has either a room for rent or a one-bedroom apartment for an incoming student and you want to help connect with Noah through me, you send me an email. It's uh, openline at vocm.com. I will forward you the contact info, Noah, if I get any. Perfect, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Have a nice weekend. You too, my friend. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Whew. good show, good week. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.